Okay, uh, welcome to the show. Um, this is the Reconfigured Podcast. I'm Hamad Kalaji, and I am an AWS community builder and software engineer at Zero and One. Today, I'm luckily with Faz. Uh, Faz, would you like to introduce yourself? Hey, Mohammed. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me over here. I'm, uh, so, hey, everyone, um, whoever's listening in or even watching the video, I'm Fuzz, um, and I'm a senior developer advocate at Amazon Web Services, a cloud company uh, under Amazon.com. And um, I've been um, working in this industry for over 16 years. Um, so happy to be here to, to share insights and also some nuggets of wisdom from whatever I've seen throughout uh, my career. So you currently work as a senior developer advocate at AWS. You help newcomers that are not familiar with cloud understand some of the basics, like let's say S3 or SQS, or is your job towards like veteran developers who, who already know how to use some services, but they want to adopt AWS on the cloud? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So. Um... Now, uh, so primarily, just to unpack uh, the the job title in general, so as a developer advocate, I I focus on uh, bridging the gap between products and services and developers, right? So these developers could be builders, so you could have them as programmers and coders who are building backend applications and frontend applications, or they could be also folks who are in the DevOps space, right? They're actually managing the operations through scripts or through automation of the infrastructure. Uh, what I primarily do in my role is that I I I enable builders according to where they are in their cloud journey. So this could be like, like you mentioned, like people who are just getting into the cloud and trying to understand the core services, right? Fundamentally about storage, compute, network, um, and then building on top of those basics where we are actually building applications on top of that, trying to go like uh, down the path of, okay, you want to use serverless, for example, you don't want any compute to manage. You just want to focus on your code or you want to go towards AI and machine learning. Um, so that's one one aspect and one set of personnel that we handle. And also, uh, uh, over uh, over a course of you know, enabling developers, we also see a lot of folks who are new to the cloud, right? And uh, they are people who have primarily been working with deploying applications on-prem, and uh, they are used to that. So now trying to make them understand how to translate that workflow into what the cloud can bring to them um, is also something that I, that I work on, depending on the kind of content and depending on the kind of... Um, uh, let's say medium I'm, I'm working on like it could be a blog post it could be like uh, creating a video or even giving talks right in conferences and, and in meetups um so it, it's it's a variety of personalities or variety of personas that uh, i i talk to and, and enable on so usually let's say like you're advocating towards on aws so people would come up ask for advice or they ask for like an implementation do you give like let's say an event with in front of people do you give them like credits to check things if they want to try them out or how does the procedure works yeah i mean so uh, depending on the event depending on who's hosting the event so for example in the community space we have two kinds of uh, events we focus on one is aws led events and then the other one is community led now within community led alone we have uh, third party uh, user groups sorry third party communities which uh, are basically like uh, developer uh, communities, which could be like .NET developer community or a Java developer community, JavaScript, etc. And then we also have the AWS user group uh, communities. Now, usually what we see is with the user group communities, which are AWS led, um, at least by community builders, such as yourself and, and others, um, we uh, usually help them in, in running those events in some form or the other, or primarily through uh, uh, pro 
providing speakers, for example, and sometimes user group leaders, they come back and tell us, okay, in our uh, community, we have interest from people who want to learn about EWS. Can we get free credits for some time or can we get uh, uh, free or discounted certification vouchers, for example. So things like these are something user group leaders uh, reach out to us on and then based on a case by case basis, we help out on that. But where I come in is uh, when, let's say, for example, um, a user group uh, community in AWS requires uh, a speaker, for example, or they need someone to just come in and then help them vet the speakers that are there, um, along with running things like workshops and study groups. That's primarily where I would come in. And uh, we have folks in uh, in the AWS DevRel team, developer relations team, who help on the other side of things like logistics, um, like things like uh, credits and vouchers. And uh, what we usually do is when we actually give um, these kind of credits and on vouchers, we always are hoping that people are actually going to sit and learn. Uh, they're actually having a certain learning path and we help them to start going on that learning path, right? So get started with uh, maybe uh, hosting a front-end application, get started with hosting a back-end application. They get their feet wet, they understand how AWS functions and then they take it from there. Okay, so it's uh, the support actually happens either through support, like actual support, they will contact you in person, they might ask for credits, they might ask for certification discounts, or you might give them some labs, maybe they want to test things out. Yeah, um, something like that. Yeah, so usually these are asks we get from the from the user group leaders, and um, because they are the people who understand the community better. Uh, because I, I'm just one person for the whole of Middle East and North Africa. Uh, so I definitely cannot be there in every country and every user group meetup. Um, so Fair we enough. work, yeah. So we work closely with the user group leaders where they come in and say, okay, fine. We think that we need to, we need to get these many credits and do that. And based on that case, we take it back in internally and then we provide support wherever we can. Okay. So you, now your current role as a senior developer advocate in the MENA region at the current moment. Yeah. But previously before you were also a senior solution architect at AWS. You helped individuals and startups adopt AWS and their products and offer technical support or do you, let's say for example like uh, the startup program supported by AWS like AWS Activate where mm -hmm. you they would actually have support from AWS a senior solutions architect would try to help them with their startup or were you like a kind of an employee who used to work there on a specific service? Oh, okay. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting question because a lot of folks, uh, they, they tend to believe that a solutions architect in AWS, working in AWS, uh, is usually someone who's deployed at a customer's place. We actually have a role for that. It's called a cloud architect, and that's a different role and a different team altogether. Um, so I'll, I'll kind of like, uh, you know, unpack all of that first. So as a solutions architect, um, when I used to, when I joined AWS in 2019, I joined in as an enterprise solutions architect. So I used to work with enterprise customers who are just getting started with the cloud. They are someone who's already been working with uh, their workloads on on-prem, for example, hosting it on on-premises in their servers, um, or they would be someone who's just started using the cloud, but they're not sure where to go next. Um, so uh, as a solutions architect, what I would do over there is I would, uh, I would work with them to understand what are the different workloads they're trying to move. Um, work alongside them building the architecture diagrams and then review their architecture diagrams, give them guidance and support, give them enablement through workshops and um, also connect them with other teams within AWS. Like for example, let's say um, and in an enterprise, for example, they may have like a team of 100 people and they're saying we need to enable all of them. We want to get them certified. So I would I would take that team, connect them with the, our training and certifications team and tell them, okay, hey, you know what? So and so, I mean, in this company and they have X number of people they want to enable, let's do this, right? So I would be a medium between 
anybody within AWS also. And uh, towards that, from a technical perspective, we also had other people like from an account perspective who would help from a business aspect uh, from discounts and credits and all that other stuff. Uh, we never touch the keyboard of the customer as a solutions architect. Ideally, what we do is we only give advice, we give guidance and workshops and enablement. Now, after staying in the enterprise space for some time, I moved to the startup space. And that's where I noticed I did somewhat similar to what I did in the enterprise space, but there's a bit more because now with startups, you also have this extra angle of trying to understand what service fits best for their use case within the time period they need to actually deliver something. Because unlike an enterprise, a startup is uh, running on a very limited budget and very limited time to try to prove something, right? Especially if it's a and startup also, that's getting... don't forget limited resources as well. Limited resources, exactly. And uh, they, are, they are folks who are trying to... Um, uh, they may be like very early in the game where they're trying to still get product market fit. Or they are a bit later in the game where they're trying to scale up. In both sides, they need extra uh, extra guidance. They need extra review. And a lot of times, it's less about enabling them on the cloud. What I've seen is primarily a lot of startups are people who already know how to use the cloud, right? They already know this is how we can get started and all. Where they need help is in trying to understand which architecture makes best sense right now based on the way their business works, based on the way that the user demand works, right? So you're talking about scale. You're talking about optimizing. Where do we optimize on? Using those limited resources, right? We, they only have like maybe like a handful of developers who can actually focus on uh, 20 features and they need to focus on, okay, which feature can we go with first? Um, so this is where a startup architect actually works hand in hand with them. Think of them as an extended version of the startup customer from a, from an architecture perspective, right? Where they're actually involving a lot. Another thing we do is like we work with the account team and then uh, we help in the activate program, which you kind of mentioned. The activate program helps in giving credits to, to startups who are just getting started, uh, depending on their use case, depending on how far they are down the line. And uh, activate is basically not only just uh, directly with AWS, they also can uh, achieve um, getting credits through uh, incubators, for example, or co-working spaces. Um, in the MENA region, I think it's a bit different. Like uh, you spoke to Nicholas last time and you would have like shed some light on that. Um, ideally, what I've seen is from where I was, I was a startup SA and enterprise SA in Malaysia. And over there, uh, we had a lot of co-working spaces where startups would go in and, you know, like they need a place to get started. And then usually co-working spaces would also help them to get credits through. Uh, so basically it's place. like a two for one offer. The incubator will give them a place and the support from AWS as, yeah. as a partnership deal. As a part, than yeah, just... something like a deal, yeah. So AWS will come in when we give uh, uh, credits based on what is the uh, scope of the startup and what they do. And then, of course, there will be an architect who would work alongside them at least uh, to review stuff and how things are moving and also help the uh, the incubators and VCs, whoever are around, to get an understanding of what the startup is doing, at least from a technology perspective. Because uh, with startups, uh, it's like they are not, uh, unlike an enterprise, with startups, uh, you're not, they're not only like focusing on users, they're also focusing on ensuring that VCs and investors know exactly what they're doing, right? They want to make sure that their roadmap makes sense, they're able to hit the, the actual revenue that they need to. So uh, a lot of factors, and I've seen is very different. So uh, one of the examples I give usually is that with startups, we're always working on cost optimization. We're always doing sessions with them where we're saying, okay, how can you reduce cost, right? As a solutions architect, we are always... Uh, um, working for the for the best of the customers. So we want to always make sure that they know, okay, this is what you should be using right now. Don't use X, don't use Y because you're spending too much money on it. Instead, use this as an alternative or reduce the amount of VMs that you're hosting because you don't need all of this compute that's running. Um, so cost optimization is a very frequent discussion that we keep having and we see startups keep tweaking um, the way they use the cloud because of that. 
But let's say, for example, if you're going to give a kind of a suggestion for what service to use, isn't a little bit like a biased kind of thing? You might recommend something that you're more comfortable with because you know about it, or you're supposed to have a scope on all of the existing services to give the actual advice. So yeah. let's say for an example, I might be comfortable with serverless. I might tell you, okay, to cut, to cut costs, just use serverless. But for the application, it might not need serverless. It might need something else that can perform much more better on a yes. much more cheaper scale than using serverless, as an example. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. And that's one of the things SAs in AWS actually work towards, right? Um, so from a scope perspective, we actually need to have a broad coverage, right? And then we go deep on certain aspects. And uh, from a, sp a solutions architect perspective, uh, we have different types of solutions architect who work with customers. So I was a general solutions architect for at least two years, um, actually one and a half years. And uh, as a general solutions architect, I need to be aware of the different kinds of services that a customer would want to use, right? Whether it's from compute, whether it's from databases. And then I work with the customer to understand what the requirement is. So the way we work in AWS is we always work backwards from what the customer wants. We don't go in and say, okay, hey, you know what? Use serverless because, you know, it's the in thing. It doesn't work that way. Um, you And we may see that the customer is either not uh, currently, they don't have the capability to handle that kind of stuff. They're used to using VMs, for example. All right, fine. So let's start with VMs and then go ahead with that. So it really, really depends on where the customer is currently and where they want to head. And then we decide and we guide them on what services they can use. A lot of times customers are looking for uh, for opinionated approaches, but a lot of times as a solutions architect, we work with the customer and tell them these are the different options. These are the trade-offs. And it's happened even personally with me, right? When I worked with customers and I told them, okay, let's use X service, right? And I do an enablement. But by the time we do the enablement, they figure out that, okay, you know what? Uh, this service is actually having too many things that we don't need. Let's just stick with the simple one. And that's okay, right? That's that's normal because as a customer, you usually discover things as you start using or adopting a service. So when we run workshops, they kind of figure it out at that time during the workshop. And I've had that conversation multiple times. And in the end, it's still a win for the customer because it's like they're getting the service, they're using a service which we need. I mean, AWS has the broadest and the deepest platform from a cloud perspective, right? From different services catering to different use cases. Um, so as a solutions architect, our job is to, you know, shed light on all of those services and then show them where they can move ahead. Um, the other side of the story is once a service is adopted and the customer goes down that path, uh, then they need help from, from uh, people who can actually guide them on, okay, how can we do this better? How can we do this? This is where we bring in something known as a specialist solutions architect, right? So these are, these are specialists who have a deep dive knowledge and a very specific uh, um, you know, like a service, edge for cases. example. Yeah. Uh, edge cases, specific edge cases. More like services. So, so more like services, right? So we have specialist architects for databases. We have specialist architects for uh, serverless, for example, for containers, for example. And this is where they come in because they know that the customer is already using this and they've just got started. But they need, uh, like for edge cases is one, advanced scenarios is another one where they want to do like maybe advanced setup or advanced networking, or they're having like migrating a lot of data through how do they get it from one service to another service and things like that. So um, along, so it's basically along the journey of a customer, wherever they are on adopting an AWS cloud service, you will see that uh, you will have different types of solutions architects working with the customer to ensure that they are getting what they need from AWS. Because in the end, a lot of what we do, uh, we tie that back into um, our leadership principles, which is basically customer obsession. So we work with the customer, we understand where they are, and then afterwards we we work backwards from that, and then see where they need to be first to the to start moving forward. But it's just general guidance. You don't 
you don't actually enter at any of the client's accounts. You don't do anything. You just tell no. them, this is what you have to do based on the requirements. But no. would they reach the position that, let's say, they would share the screen of the console to tell you this is what we did, what we should do, or or yeah. it's just like Which general is, guidance? Yeah. No, so which is fine. So they will show their console if they need to, and then we could tell them, okay, this is how you do it. Reverse, what we do is also sometimes, and I've done this multiple times, where we also have AWS accounts, which we use, and then we will try to reproduce what they're having as issues, and then we show them, okay, this is how you actually solve it, right, on our screen share. So uh, the idea with us not touching the keyboard is that we don't enter their account and do anything, but the customer usually would share it uh, share it on the screen share. And before the pre, I mean, pre-pandemic, we would be actually at the customer site meeting them right so we, we would go in and then we would do meetings over there so that's where they would show okay this is what we're doing on aws what do you think we should be like you know doing something else and uh with uh, i i mentioned there's a third there's another role called a cloud architect now when a customer starts using aws what we usually see is that um, there are three scenarios that play out right once a customer gets enabled on aws uh, the first one is that they have a team of their own and they want to enable them and then the team will then run aws right they they'll operate aws uh, accounts and everything else uh, for these people we provide trainings and uh, sas would also solution architects will basically provide workshops and then the team then continues working and then they they work with the solutions architect and the training and cert team. The other option is the customer says, okay, hey, you know what? I want to, um, uh, I, I need to deliver something in a certain time. So I need to accelerate this or we don't have enough people to actually deliver this. Can we work with a partner outside? So that's when they would come to partners like zero and one, right? And then they would come and say, okay, hey, you know what? Um, we have this so-and-so scope. Can you build this for us? And then folks like Zero and One, they come in and then after they understand the scope, they deliver on a certain scope and time. Sometimes certain partners, they enable the customer along the way, right? They say, okay, fine, we have built this for you, but we are also going to enable you along the way and then do that. Then there is a third scenario that plays out where the customer says, you know what, I want only AWS to enable me. So that's where we have something known as professional services, which is a consulting arm of AWS, which comes in and then they have something known as cloud architects, right? And they also work like partners where they have like, a, a focus scope and a focus time to deliver certain uh, requirements to the customer and they operate on the customer account and then after they hand over everything back to them within their own way. So these are the three scenarios that usually play out. And, and so, the, wait, yeah. so so technically the, the third option is that you can actually hire, let's say like a partner-like service from AWS, directly from AWS itself, like yes. a group of software developers that can develop a solution for you. Cloud architects, yeah. So they are cloud architects. They usually work on anything that requires um, stuff to be built on AWS. So uh, cloud architects. So you wouldn't bring a professional services in cloud architect come and say, okay, hey, you know what? Build me, uh, yeah, build me a clone of one of the popular social media platforms on AWS. That's not how it works. What they would come in and say was like, hey, we want to actually start using. Um, uh, Kafka, right? And we want to use managed Kafka, for example. How do we get started with this? I want somebody to come in from AWS and set up this whole thing for me. So MSK, for example, is already there. We want someone to come in and set this up and then afterwards uh, help us to connect all the code together. Um, so you would have someone from AWS come in, set up MSK with an AWS, and then the customer's uh, team would then integrate their code with those AWS services and then continue from there. That's where a partner like zero in one makes sense because sometimes customers would share their code base with partners directly and then the partner would then make changes in their code. Um, it's a bit different with, with professional services. They are primarily operating within the AWS space. Okay, so I got what you mean. It's it's kind of like, I never actually expected that AWS does offer this kind of service. I always thought it's like just a service provider 
and they offer like training services, but I never expect you can actually get a cloud. Uh, you do like cloud architects from... is there, and, and and each region does it differently. I think based on the demand in the region, uh, you usually see that there is more or less. Um, in in the MENA region, I've noticed that we are we are we have a lot of partners, right? I mean, zero and one, for example, and a lot of others who customers are already comfortable with working, and which is fine. So which works totally for the customer also. So that's where customers would then work with partners directly, and then and get what is needed. And then you have like in AWS, you have a partner team that works with. Um, the partners to help them to deliver what is required to the customer by enabling them. So similar to how, as a solutions architect, I would enable customers with workshops, you would have the partner team having a partner solutions architect that would work with partners to enable them on certain things, right? Especially if it's like uh, very critical deliveries, for example, they need to learn X, Y, and Z in AWS, and then you would, someone would come and help them to understand the architecture and, and do that. Again, each region is different. A lot of what I'm seeing is is primarily from what I have seen and experienced in in the in the ASEAN space and basically in Asia, um, and in in MENA definitely it's it's a, a bit of a difference. Like I said, more partner focused um, in this case. So along with your work as a solution architect at AWS and a senior developer advocate, you also worked as a solution architect and a senior web developer at Randstad in Malaysia, which is a yep a company worth over $24.5 billion, 18 years in the experience. They have multitude of services from accounting, business, uh, banking and finance, construction, and much more. What are the most interesting challenges to solve at a company at this kind of a scale? Usually when we work, we work at, let's say, like a small scale company, a startup level, or we might reach to a sub-enterprise level kind of companies but we never reached a position to deal with companies that are kind of actual like enterprise with huge amount of services to offer. What are the kind of challenges you face that that is mostly reasonable and it shows much more in those kind of companies than smaller scale companies? Right. So uh, just to give context, Randstad um, is a, is a multinational uh, recruitment and staffing firm, um, which is based out of the Netherlands. And, uh, uh, like you like you mentioned from a revenue perspective, they have offices all over this place. And um, I used to lead the uh, solution architecture side of things in APAC, in Asia Pacific. So in Asia Pacific, we had like five offices, uh, five to six offices, if I remember correctly. And um, coming um, into a company like Randstad, you usually notice that uh, one thing is that, I mean, because they're not a, they're not a startup, they're basically uh, focused on a certain industry and a certain vertical and they have like already an ongoing base of customers and then they have business more business that is already coming in right so revenue keeps coming in based on what they do they usually leverage it to 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 accelerate what they're already doing in business right so their primary business is not it their primary business is recruitment and and, uh, and hr and all these other things so as any firm or any enterprise because ransart is basically an enterprise what they would do is they would optimize themselves in such a way that they would optimize it for the way their business works. So IT would then IT would actually build applications to make their business work better, right? A lot of times those would be applications that are very niche that just work within Transted. You wouldn't be able to take that parcel or package it and then give it to somebody else. That's pretty difficult, right? And over the years you start accumulating a lot of technical debt and a lot of legacy. So when I joined the company in 2015, um, we were just at the beginning phase of um, getting started on the cloud. So I had already used AWS before that. I had also used other cloud provider services at that point of time, even though they were pretty early. 
And um, when I joined as a senior web developer, um, the their focus at that time was to get started with that portal. Um, so they already had something known as a timesheet portal, which was used for multiple consultants and and multiple employees who would uh, who would work monthly contracts, and then they would then file those timesheets every day, and then they get paid end of the week or end of the month. Now that application um, was actually one of many applications that are being used because uh, they also pay out money, so they would do billing, they would do invoicing. Uh, so a lot of critical applications were running behind the scenes, and. Uh, they initially had just their idea that if we do anything modern or anything new, it would only be on on applications like which are just facing the customer because they don't want to touch any of the older stuff because if it breaks, then uh, you know the business actually suffers loss because of that. Um, so when we get started, we uh, I came in and then the application that was built uh, it was a, a .NET web application .NET MVC .NET four three perhaps and it was an esp.net application like any standard esp.net application it is something that is rife with uh, with um, what do you call um, uh, snippets of .net sitting inside front end code and then you would have the drag and drop you drag yeah the yeah the drag, drag and drop and is one of them but beyond that also you are having like um, uh, sql code running from the html side right so you'll have esp.net code that is calling sql databases directly i mean think of all the anti patterns that you could think of and we had already seen that i've I've, I've learned asp.net in university i i feel what you're saying right now yeah so um one of the things i still remember clearly is fresh in my mind so the cto at that time um, when i met him um, he was in Australia, and uh, when I when I met him, uh, uh, he had uh, and then we were going through the demo of the application and stuff. He had actually said, uh, uh, so a lot of times we used to get a spinner for every page we used to load because it's a server side render page. Everything gets you know data gets accumulated and populated, and then you get that final HTML page, right? And they um, and he used to tell me, you know, the circle which you see the business side, uh, basically the consultants and managers, they called it the blue circle of death. Kind of like the blue, uh, blue yeah, because you have to wait because you have to wait for exactly. the response to come back, and you don't know if it's, it's gonna get a response or it doesn't get a response. Exactly. So, so what happened was, and and it was interesting when coming into this point because now they 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 accepted this is how the behavior is, right? This is not what we wanted to. They were not focusing on that. They were focusing on how do we add features to this more and try to make sure it doesn't slow down further than what it was. So when I came in, I actually uh, started digging around a bit. Um, as, of course, as, as any person who joins a new company, you shouldn't just go in directly and then start changing code left and right. You should focus on what the requirements are the business wants. And then once you earn trust, then you start going into how you can improve things, right? How do you change things better? Um, that's kind of like what I started doing. Uh, we uh, Then I, I found out that, uh, okay, there were certain optimizations I could start doing. So I still remember clearly the first optimization I had done was, um, um, so this app was already on AWS. It was the first application deployed to AWS. It used EC2 instances. It used uh, load balancers. It used S3 buckets for uploading images, timesheet images, you know, scanned copies and stuff. And uh, every time we would, we would do a scanned copy uh, we, uh, from the browser, it would go through the .NET code and then go through an S3 bucket. Right? And then every time we needed to fetch a file to show it in the browser, we would do the same thing back. So at that time, I was reading the documentation of S3, and then I, I saw, okay, there is something known as a pre-signed URL. Is this something that we can use? Hmm. So I started looking at it, and then I noticed, okay, so pre-signed URLs give an option for having temporary URLs, right? And the idea is that with a temporary URL, you could then fetch the file within a certain amount of time, like maybe a few seconds up to a couple of days, and then you could also upload it back. So you could do a post on it. Um, so all I did was I just changed the way that code worked, where it instead of fetching the file and then streaming it through the .NET app, we would just get a pre-signed URL and then give it to the browser. The browser would render it. And then the same way the other way, 
we save 20% of the time just by doing that right 20% yeah, of the you're, time for you're, you're, you're not yeah. fetching the entire file like imagine if you have like a 50 megabyte file or a 100 megabyte file and and like you can actually render those kind of workflows on AWS because the cloud already fetches them on on high speed internet but as the number of files get bigger and bigger and bigger and more clients doing it the application will get way much smaller so exactly. what you so what you technically did is that you start reading the URL directly from S3 from the application and let the client part handle this instead of you handling on the server side yeah so at that point of time what we used to call this was amortization across clients leveraging the cloud directly without taking the load on our servers right that kind of like started leading down this path of okay how much else of the load can we put on the cloud directly right s3 is literally scalable from a lot of angles so we did we took the next step from that so this was the first one so this kind of showed us the power of what all we could do on the cloud beyond just lift and shift right Mm, the next step we did was, and this is 2015, 2016 we're talking about, we started decoupling the application. So we built a brand new application in Angular and then afterwards built HTTP APIs within the .NET code. So we had a web layer and we we removed the whole, in, over a period of six months to eight months, we removed the whole ESP.NET layer itself. We kept it over there for backward compatibility, but then afterwards we started uh, channeling all the requests through our REST API from the Angular app. And again, what we did over there is to host the Angular app. And at that time, it was unheard of, right? It was a feature that was already there, but a lot of people, in in at least in our side, uh, hadn't actually started with that. We took the Angular app and we hosted it in S3 because, hey, you could host a static site, right? And that's when, after that, we started hearing a lot of Jamstack and, you know, other things, but we actually did that in 2016. And uh, that app is still running, right? The settings which we did at that time, it's still working, right? With a lot of uh, uh, redirections and whatever else we did. So this gave us a big push into understanding how we could leverage the cloud better. And what we did internally was we built a use case and we actually built a case study around this and we put this back into our CIO and CTO, which then got pushed to global. And then afterwards, at that time, global was also looking at the cloud from a different perspective, right? They were looking at, okay, how can we leverage the cloud for other things? This gave them what they needed. And they so show, uh, we showed them that, okay, you take a legacy app, you can actually do this. Let's start moving towards the cloud. So from 20... Uh, mid of 2016 up to 2018 we started our cloud migration journey where we moved over a period of 18 months we moved all our apps from our data centers into the cloud so by the time uh, mid 2018 came uh, march april uh, we had shut down all our data centers in apac right um, the other countries were still running it for other reasons for compliance and stuff uh, but we were good so in apac we exited our sydney's data centers our singapore data centers all within a period of eight mo- 18 months after doing um, moving them into you know like reformatting some rearchitecting some of them some of the lift and shift and others so uh, from a, from a company perspective that that showed us that an enterprise is willing to change right the only difference is that you need to show it from a business value perspective you need to show them okay you want to use x latest technology fine how does it translate into value for us how does it translate into improving our business better and then when you go down that path you actually start seeing that you will get more people to support you uh, as long as you are able to show uh, the kind of value they need to see um, from that case there is a fear with enterprise companies shifting towards something because they are afraid of something that would impact their clients or they would impact other businesses. So if it, it's mostly uh, effective when you're like a B2C, much more than B2B. Le- I would say and, and I would say it works. It works with B2B. We did it. And and the way we did it is by not disrupting the business asset. So 
there's a term which we use in the enterprise space and in general nowadays in any business, right? So we call it like business as usual, BAU. So you will have applications that are currently running and you have customers that you're currently servicing. You need to make sure that the way you architect your applications does not disrupt what they do. What we did at that point of time was basically what everyone talks about right now with microservices, basically strangler pattern, right? The whole idea of actually creating a facade in front and then slowly under the hood changing everything so that you then re- renew the engine, right? Remove the old engine, put in the new engine, but the customer doesn't know. Well, customer, it's still the same, right? They, they don't know whether it's an old system or a new system behind the scenes. We did exactly this with, with almost like any, uh, all our web applications that were customer facing. We, we did this and our customers were, were both we are businesses and then we also have the employees right who are actually using um, our application so again right you need to as a, if you are working in an enterprise and you're actually trying to migrate to the cloud and you want to make sure that you assuage all the fears which people have with disrupting business as usual you need to make sure that your architecture serves in such a way that you cause low less to no disruption right? As much as possible. It does mean you may have to take a a different path instead of just saying, okay, for six months, we're going to shut down everything and then we'll move everything to the cloud, big bang. It doesn't work like that. I mean, in a startup or an enterprise, everyone wants to go from an agile perspective, right? Iteratively, you want to change. This is basically it. So you want to make sure that you architect in a certain way, your architecture evolves in a certain way. So you have a transitionary architecture where you move from point A to point B to point C to the final destination. Um, So that's kind of like how you would want to look at it. So let's say it's, uh, I want to recap on this. So, for example, if an enterprise has an application, what you would do is that you would put part of it on the cloud. And let's say, for example, you migrate a small portion of the clients to the, let's say, the AWS version, and some of them still using the on-prem, mm-hmm. similar to how like a, uh, like a blue-green deployment or canary, where let's say 20% of the clients use the AWS version and some of them still use the on-prem, and then slowly they adopt using the cloud one till everyone is on the cloud. So you stop the existing on-prem server. Is it something like this? No, not 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 like that. Okay, from, from a principal perspective, it looks like a blue-green. Um, so how we did it with our... Okay, this classic timesheet example itself is, is a classic case study we still use. I mean, Randstad went early also, uh, at least with whoever I checked. We had to move, uh, uh, there were a lot of moving parts with this application that was still on-prem, right? And what we did was we uh, we uh, mapped out the architecture and we saw, okay, what are the different uh, parts that we need? So we have the VM side of things, which is basically compute. You have all the application web servers that are running inside, basically IAS web server. You have the databases, right? And then you also have other services that may be running as as cron jobs and other things. So what we did was we, we figured out uh, that we had uh, Direct Connect already set up uh, between uh, our uh, between our on-prem uh, site and also uh, AWS. We kept the database on on-prem, and we moved everything else first because it's easier to move your web application, knowing that your web application, even if it dies, you can spin up another one, and the data still is integ- uh, the integrity of the data is still maintained. The challenge becomes when you actually split your database and then you move to, you have one version here, one version here, then you have to have, uh, you have to reconcile a lot of the data. So we avoided all of that. And we, what we did was we took a hit on latency, um, at least from a server perspective. And we first moved our web apps, uh, all the app code, uh, the uh, all the business logic, everything into AWS first. We kept the database at the end over here. We kept testing this for like a few weeks until we were sure that, okay, fine, the app is working. We started optimizing some of the code because of that, because we hit certain latency. And this was around a time where uh, in 20, uh, 20, end of 2017, we were hit by a lot of cable cuts, 
submarine cable cuts. So uh, the challenge then was, okay, we were deploying it. Uh, we had a database. We had certain apps which had databases in Sydney, but the application was running in Singapore. And then now we had a cable cut in the middle. So the traffic was routing through Japan and then coming down. So we hit all of this. And I actually spoke about this in one of the re- recent meetups which we had in Dubai. So... Um, the challenge in all of this is that uh, you want to make sure that the data is interactive because if the data gets uh, for some reason you have a problem with the reconciling it's going to it's going to cause ripples across the system so we first moved the web apps and then when we had to move the database we had to go in a big bang approach which basically meant we had to take a dump we had to shut down uh, like we had to take a window where we needed to stop all uh, requests coming into the service and then we moved we had uh, we took a database dump and then we moved everything across right towards this one so, the, it, so it's like a maintenance the, yeah. like a maintenance window they say something like a maintenance are, window yeah yes yeah, it's like uh, those sometimes a website would say like oh we're gonna issue a maintenance window on this yeah. day for two hours the service is not going to operate as as you expected something like that yeah now the now one of the things we did was was for another application we wanted to uh, we wanted to skip the whole database migration because we wanted to ditch using sql server for that app we wanted to use DynamoDB. What we did over there was something similar to what you said, where we had new code, which was written within the application code base, which would start writing new records into DynamoDB. And then we had another code, uh, another application that ran as a job behind the scenes that would read all the data entries from uh, uh, from SQL Server and then put them into DynamoDB, right? The older records. This helped us because at that time, DMS had just got started, but they had not supported SQL Server. They were only supporting MySQL at that time with a specific version. So database migration service, we didn't have that at that time, at least for the support that we needed. So we did a lot of this behind the scenes. So that helped us. So this was this was really helpful where we needed to have two databases, but it was because we were re-architecting the database. We were removing the old one and putting something brand new, right? Which had a different data modeling engine, right? Which was like different from a schema perspective. So uh, that was something that we really did. And I mean... Um, a lot of this kind of helped us to to build that foundation of how we should migrate XYZ. This helped us to build uh, playbooks and guardrails, which we would then share with global and then say, okay, fine, this is how we did it. So you can share this with whoever else is there and then tell them how they can get started. So, um, yeah, I mean, um, that's that's kind of like what we did uh, from, a, from a cloud perspective. Uh, and, and there's a lot. I mean, this is just like a <laughs> tip of the iceberg. Tip of the iceberg. This is uh, compared nothing to what uh, other stuff you've actually achieved. Oh, the, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. That's yeah. It's it's fun stuff. Fun stuff, definitely. But isn't like it's documented in use cases given to AWS to use as examples? Um, as in, uh, let's say for example, those use cases wouldn't be like cool if it was documented and given to AWS as a use case to use, like uh, edge cases or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So, so as a customer, so uh, it's it's a good point, right? So as a customer, um, you are usually when you work with AWS account teams, you usually share your use cases and how you're doing things. Uh, what happens is sometimes um, as an account team, we would take that back and then we we give that inputs to service teams internally, right? So maybe we used S3 in a certain way, we scaled it in a certain way, but I think S3 can do this better. And then somebody would uh, like an essay, I would go in and then I would, I would uh, take it to the service teams and then service teams would then look at it from a roadmap perspective. If they see a lot of customers seeing the same stuff, then they know, okay, this is a priority. And then afterwards they take it because uh, uh, like Andy Jesse said, um, in one of the previous reinvents, it's like 95% of what we build in AWS is customer driven, right? 5% is what we believe the customer should have and they don't know that they need it. So you're looking at a lot of uh, our services being, uh, a lot of the features that you see being customer driven, right? And by customer driven, it's like you're seeing a lot of customers globally coming and talking about 
but okay, I want to use X, I want to use Y, I want to use Z. The other side is that, um, uh, and even recently that there's been, a, and if you've noticed a lot of the AWS blogs, we are doing a lot of customer uh, collabs, right? We have a lot of customers who are coming and sharing how they use AWS on the AWS blog. So we have a lot of architecture that's being shared. This is how we solved X by doing Y and using these services. And we did they it. Usually those uh, customers will just say, that usually when I've read a couple of them, they would have a problem, an edge case problem, or some kind of problem they're facing with, how AWS solved it. And sometimes they will mention the partner that helped them achieve this kind of thing. As, okay, as an... so so that's the that's a standard business case study. We also have the technical blog where we have customers who come in and then they talk about their architecture. They actually share the architecture diagram. And then uh, we also have uh, like this, uh, the show that we run, this is my architecture, where customers also come in and then talk about how their architecture works and uh, why they did the architecture in a certain way. So this sharing is always there um, from that extent. Uh, but uh, at least uh, the good thing is that from, from an AWS perspective, we listen to our customers to understand how they're using AWS. Because when we build a service, when you build, let's say, any service or a feature, you'll be surprised by how a customer uses it in a certain way, right? We have a lot of those memes where they show that, uh, I don't know if you've seen this one, where somebody built a footpath, but then you see everyone walking across the grass. Right. Oh yeah, uh, I've seen those kind of things. Yeah, exactly. So, so and and we are fascinated. We always keep talking about this, how our customers surprise us with the way they use services and the way they do stuff. I mean, S three as a static static uh, website is a classic example. I still remember when we when we figured it out at that time. Um, there was only one blog post that had said about the possibility that you could do this, and we were already using it in production. Right. So, uh, as a customer, you discover a lot of cases like this, which you want to go back and share with AWS and say, hey, you know what, we did this uh, for you. Well, the cool thing about this is that there are other places where uh, people have actually put their use cases or stuff they've built on AWS that's not directly correlated to on AWS directly. So let's say, for example, on Reddit, I've seen someone used SES and S3 to create an email client uh, where you send an, an email to SES and it saves the response with Lambda on S3, similar to how an email provider... Email inbox, ah. It's similar to an email inbox. It's exactly the same. Like you have your own email uh, that, but it's completely serverless and it's completely cheap. Yeah. Yeah, we have and, a lot of cases like that. And the guy open sourced the code on GitHub. It's like, okay, here's the code. You can see how the implementation is. It's like he has nothing to hide. There's this, here's the implementation. And it was insane. And, and, and the cloud formation template was insane. And think about this, right? Think about this, the fact that the person had to just leverage managed services. They didn't need to set up their own mail server. They didn't need to set up like how to configure SMTP and all that. They just needed to use SCS and then they use S3 and they were done, right? And that, I guess, kind of is a prime example of what the cloud brings to you, right? From a managed service perspective where you don't need to uh, you know, look into the uh, to the inner workings. You don't need to take that undifferentiated heavy lifting. We manage all that for you. And then you just look at the use cases. You just focus on, okay, this is, I need to build a mail inbox. Okay, how can I make it so simple? How can I do it in the most laziest way so that it just works? And great, it works now. And you have someone who's sharing it already. I, I think that's that's actually a grown um, uh, base of user examples, like you mentioned, like on GitHub, for example. There's a lot of samples that are out there. AWS also has sample repositories. So we have AWS samples and AWS labs uh, and a lot of workshop content. But a lot of customers and a lot of people who are, um, you know, like experimenting with the cloud, they build uh, cloud formation templates. They build uh, infrastructure code. Uh, Terraform and all the stuff and then they put it all on GitHub and share it with everyone saying okay this is how I think we should do this and I think that helps 
a lot of people who are trying to get into the cloud it helps them to know that okay there's this huge community that is uh, that is showing okay how we use aws also there's so, also like edge cases like let's say like uh, ctk whereas uh, aws would offer like a construct uh, a construct set of constructs they've actually set it up based on the requirements that fits on aws on the best way possible and there's like community based uh, constructs yes. let's say like construct hub where you go, yeah. you search for use cases. There are also some stuff on Construct Hub issued by people who work at AWS or let's say, for example, they're like serverless hero or DevTools hero. They've already did the construct for you based on the requirements that AWS fits in. So yeah. it's not just only just Terraform or CloudFormation. There's much more than just one edge case that they're providing it. But mostly, as if I've seen it, it's mostly just community-based, much more than just AWS. Yeah, like which, AWS would it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. AWS would provide you, let's say, like a like a something that an edge case that they've actually faced with in the past, or they give you like something to begin with as like a, a starting template. On the construct hub, let's say you see edge cases or stuff that people actually did, and they just launch it as a construct. Exactly, and 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 that's the whole point, right? We give them enough to get started with, and. You can't you can't cover every edge case, right? And that's where we scale through the community, and the community also helps us in, in trying to show this is how you can do better. If you go to a lot of our uh, some of our services, we have our roadmaps on GitHub right now, right? So we have the container roadmap, for example. We have like Amplify's roadmap, and a lot of the customer requests, issues, and features. You should go and see the discussion that happen over there. People are using things in a way which we didn't anticipate they would, and then they come back and they tell us this is how we should do it. A classic example is SSR, for example, Next.js, for example, and this is stuff that the community brought to the fore uh, on Amplify and said we had some people said okay. We are doing it in this way. These are the constructs that we use. We are using CDK or we're using CloudFormation templates. How can you make this better? And then we went back and then the service teams went back, worked on it, and then they came back with some support, not full support, but some support for SSR already. So um, as as uh, as a cloud provider who's working with you know different types of customers, we believe in the power of the community, right? The whole idea that people can actually build on top of what we are providing and then make much more powerful use cases um, in this case. So you worked at Randstad in the past, and you also worked at Huawei, also as a software engineer. Yep. So what is the, the most interesting thing you've did there? And if I want to ask, since there's a lot of people with Huawei devices and stuff like that, is it something that is implemented on our day-to-day -day life? Uh, did you develop day to day life? Oh, okay. Like, you mean like that? Oh, you, okay. You implemented uh, something that we use. Let's say, for example, I used to have a Huawei phone. Did you develop something that's kind of a service that I use on a daily basis? If you worked on the 5G, uh, don't be shy to say so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I would I would have loved to say that I, I worked on the consumer side of things, but I didn't. So what happened was uh, when I joined Huawei, and this was in 2006, uh, we were not in the mobile space at all, right? Uh, mobile phones were just getting started. Uh, you had everything with black and white screens at that point of time. The iPhone released only in, what, 2008, 2009, if I remember correctly. Um, so um, I was on the telecom side. So in the, in the telco space, I was working with, uh, with uh, billing services, subscribing services, uh, SMS gateways, and uh, maybe... If you've ever had a caller ringtone where somebody calls you and they hear, you know, like sound like music or some radio or something, um, yep. and if that was powered by Huawei, by your telco, then most probably I've worked on that. 
because uh, that was the product that I was I was part of. So I did that for almost like three and a half years, where um, we built a lot of the core base um, along with our Chinese counterparts. Uh, the mobile division actually started in 2011, if I remember correctly. Uh, I still remember they had actually blocked off one whole floor in our office in India uh, for uh, R&D because they were just getting started. Consumer space was new for Huawei at that point of time. So they wanted to slowly get into that. And that's one of the things I've noticed as a company. What they do is that they they don't usually jump into the latest and the greatest. They usually take their time. But then when they learn what they need to do, then they go at speed. Um, and I've seen different examples of that also with the way they work um, in terms of tech. So mobile started at that time. I left the company in 2012. And I think the first uh, mainstream device, public device came in 2014, uh, if I remember correctly. I think that was one of the major model releases. And ever since then, the phones have just been, you know, like they've been adding more value and, and things like that. So that's where their consumer division actually grew from that point. Uh, but before that, it was primarily business. But uh, from a telecom perspective, also, did you provide, let's say, like routers, software for routers, for example, or uh, uh, back on that time, I don't think there's any uh, 4G or 3G routers at that time. They were just like regular hubs where you just, uh, let's say, like like those Cisco machines. Yep, yep. So uh, Huawei actually, uh, Huawei did that. There was another division for that um, on, on routers and switches, network switches. Um, so... We were, we were doing uh, networking equipment. I mean, Huawei in general did networking equipment. They did also telco um, telco uh, uh, hardware and software. So it's basically like what Huawei would do is, I don't know what their model is right now. I'm just saying based on what I remember at that time, is they would go to a, a telco operator and they would say, okay, hey, you know what? Do you want to set up uh, like the whole telco infrastructure and then they would say okay fine and they will give the contract to huawei huawei has everything hardware software and the people they would deploy everything over there at once and they would manage it also for uh, the operator so uh, that's what we did network switches was also definitely part of it um, so that was already there mm, in the mobile space i remember uh, the ones who were leading in the mobile space at that time was kyocera japanese company and they were already working on 4g in 2000 nine i believe when we were uh, still talking about uh, 2g and just getting into 3g at that point of time so the japanese the kyocera company they were actually leading in in the spectrum space at that point of time but this is we are talking about what uh, uh, 13 uh, 13 years 15 yeah 14 years ago yeah almost yeah like 13 years yeah that's that's a long time <laughs> that's a, that's a very long time <laughs> It's quite unexpected, actually. You you kind of expected like they start thinking about four G at the time, like even three G didn't like been fully yeah. operated. Yes, yes, and it's the same right now, right? You're talking about five G right now, but they're already leaps and bounds ahead. A lot of the but they did implement uh, some places in five G, but there's like the health concern concern issues of five G because of the waves that it emits might cause certain issues with people. So this is why I think the five G issue hasn't been fully resolved. As, okay. I, as I was I, like I reading, yeah, I haven't read too much into that space. Uh, I I know that uh, uh, some some countries have implemented in, in bits and parts. Um, it's not there everywhere. I think the US has done it in a certain way also. Uh, but in some guess, places, uh, not yeah. not every single place. No, not every place. Yeah, exactly. So that's that's kind of like how you would want to do that. But the funny thing was that even though I was in telco, I was more or less on the software side, right? So I was a backend engineer. I started my career as a backend engineer in Java, uh, Java Enterprise. 1.4 at that point of time. And uh, that's kind of like where it grew. 
So one of the things what we brought to the table and my experience over there helped me a lot four and a half years of sitting there was the the kind of scale that we operated on right and that's the kind of scale we're seeing in AWS right now like massive scale in terms of data in terms of you know applications running and services and um, ensuring that everything stays uh, working and it doesn't disrupt because if a telco network gets disrupted then it's like millions of people right who wouldn't be able to like either use their phone or use a service and, and things like that so uh four and a half years over there actually yeah that was a lot of experience um i got from that but also you have like an interesting shift in your career where you worked as a corporate employee then you shifted to become an independent solution consultant what what was the feeling when you want to shift from a nine-to-five job to let's say an open job where you where you can be your own uh, boss or you can be your own uh, employer where you set the rules on how things get done and what reached you to a position that you've entered in this independent state and then go back to corporate yeah i guess i, I i'm guessing every person in their it career at some point of time reaches a point where they say you know what i should i should definitely try something of my own either the, nowadays everyone does a startup uh, but at that point of time not everyone would do a startup because you needed a lot of capital still it was difficult to do a bootstrapping kind of a version in my case it's a bit different because what happened was i had already spent 6 years in in the corporate space um, as uh, a software engineer and a senior software engineer and what i felt at that point of time was that um, that's what I thought, right? So I thought that, okay, I have enough experience to, to design applications right now. And uh, I can take this skill and then provide it to customers who don't have that kind of skill already, right? So I would go in and then I would tell them, okay, fine, this is the kind of project you could build. Uh, this is the kind of, um, you know, backend application, frontend application. At that time, I was also dabbling with mobile applications. So I was uh, I was doing a lot of um, uh, Cordova applications which is basically uh, the web ui kind of packaged into android and ios stuff and uh, this was after i left the company so i thought okay this is this works and this would be something that would give me flexibility from my end on how i would work with um, customers it would give me some time in my case uh, this control over my time but of course expectations are different and then when you actually go into the into the industry it's different and also uh, where you operate also matters uh, in this case things yeah, didn't go as expected as i see Yes. <laughs> so that's, one of the that's the word. That's the word. Yeah. Things, things are expected. Is so I, I guess I guess for folks who are listening into this even later, I guess one of the things you should always understand is the the green uh, the grass is not always greener on the other side, right? You have to make the grass green on that side, or you have to be happy with what you have. Um, I, I, that's a lesson that I learned over the years, and uh, even in this case, what happened was uh, there's a lot of factors, and uh, you know, as a if you want to become a consultant, you should be in a place where you have control over certain things. I moved, uh, that time I left my job in Bangalore in India. And then afterwards I moved back to Dubai. So I'm an expat in Dubai. And so being an expat and also being a consultant at that point of time is, was a diff- it was a stretch altogether because you still needed to do a lot of the prep work and visas and all of the things. Plus I had a family also that tough time. So, I mean, if you're alone, it's easy for you to just, you know, like as they call it, have a ramen budget, right? Just eat noodles yeah. every day and then figure it out. It's, but, it's like you can get like an apartment with like three to four people, uh, cut exactly. the rent and just live on ramen for like X amount of exactly. time. Yeah, it, works, that, it works well for, for people who are just starting out, but doesn't work for someone who's already established. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and beyond that, I, I guess one of the biggest challenges I saw, and that's something that I've been working on ever since, is that just because I build stuff doesn't mean that I know how to sell it. Right. The fact that you can actually go to someone and tell them, OK, I'm going to provide you value in what I'm building is a skill of its own. 
right? Because it's easy for me to just go and throw words at them and saying, okay, I can build a mobile app on iOS and Apple and blah and stuff like that. I could do, and I did a lot of interesting projects in, in Dubai at that point of time. I did a lot of warehouse management system integration with, uh, with, uh, with uh, at that time, nobody used the cloud, right? So at that time, they needed ways to sync data between different offices over the public internet, but needed to be safe. So I used to build systems for that. And uh, in the projects were interesting, but they wouldn't care about what the technology is behind the scenes. Again, it goes back to the business value, right? So convincing them on what business value you can give is an art and it takes time, right? In this consulting gig, especially one of the things as a salary man, I mean, to be honest, if you are doing a job, the good thing is, you know, end of the month, you will get a paycheck. And as, as a consultant, it's it's different. That doesn't mean that you can't do it because there's a lot of people who have done it. I mean, I mean, classic example, zero and one, Ali, right? Who started the company. I mean, he started this on his own with, with whatever he had. And I mean, look where he has come. So what I, over, over, I was there for three years. I did this for three years and I did some pretty interesting projects, which actually helped me a lot throughout my career afterwards. The salary works if, let's say, your amount of, let's say, uh, income that you're actually getting for the company where you take a small percentage as a salary and keep the rest for the company. It works well, for example. But if you're kind of like living, uh, trying to sustain yourself by creating some projects for some clients uh, and moving back and forth, and you're just waiting for the project to end to get a big salary, it's it's what you've actually worked throughout those months to get them. It's the exactly. same equivalent, but you should have like enough leverage to sustain yourself while the project finishes. Or exactly. you could have actually have enough income or actually the company has enough resources to, to give you like a, a, a virtual, um, you can say this, a virtual income per month where actually you just have money sitting around that you actually use as an income while you get the other batch. Yeah. So you're basically talking about cushioning, right? So the idea is that you need to have at least like X number of months of cushion money so that you can support your lifestyle in a certain way. And then when you start getting revenue slowly, it, it helps. Now, the challenge with that is that, especially when you're in a consulting gig, uh, you are highly dependent on the cycle with which the customer is going to pay you, right? And if for some reason they don't pay you because they had other reasons, for, and everyone has their own reasons for that, you're stuck. You're basically stuck. And it doesn't help if you do more projects because you can't stop the project that you're already doing because you know that you still need to get paid. Yeah, so, you're going to get like a huge amount of headaches, actually. Yeah, so it really depends, right? And and I saw over the years, I mean, it it yeah, the way you deal with with these kind of scenarios, they help shape your experience. And one of the things I, I learned from that was also to understand which customers would want to commit upfront and which customers don't want to commit upfront because they're not they're not uh, sure or convinced about the technology that you're being you know, that is actually being used. And again, at that time, like I said, the cloud was something that was non-existent at that point of time, right? Even modern app development was non-existent, right? CI/CD was something that I was already familiar with from my job in in India, but it was not existent over here. People were not even using version control systems in in in. Dubai. A lot of the code bases were sitting in servers somewhere else. So there's a lot of stuff that has happened. So three years, I, I did all of this and it, it gave me an insight of what I would want to be. But I noticed also that the market doesn't have the kind of uh, uh, demand that would work with the kind of skills I have, which is when I decided, okay, I need to move on from here. And then afterwards, uh, move for other greener pastures at that point of time i had no choice i had to move to a greener pasture which is basically malaysia in this case and i joined randstad um in that angle but a lot of that experience that i that i built over there helped me in randstad and helped me also in aws 
um, later. So definitely not not a loss. It's definitely something that uh, uh, I still value uh, from the time I had over here. But it's not something you would recommend to everyone, actually. It really depends on your appetite. Uh, you mentioned in the beginning of, with the question. Um, I think one of the things that you need to uh, have when you're doing consulting is that you need to be highly disciplined. Right? You really need to be able to do things at a certain time and do it regularly. Um, selling, for example, right, going to customers and then meeting people, you may meet uh, maybe like 20, 30 people and you may get just one project. You should be willing to do that. You should be willing to put that effort. Um, and it takes time. But the moment, what I've seen with a lot of people is what some people who stick with that discipline, who have that patience, they eventually reach that point. It takes some time. Right, but they eventually reach a point where okay, one project leads to another, and then to another, and then you suddenly see that okay, your hands are full, and you need to hire people to you know do more. Uh, that's when you build a company, and that's when you actually start uh, uh, building a team around you, so that you can you can have more time to develop the business and develop the company. So yeah, yeah, I got what you mean on this because I was uh, every single person who actually wants to reach a position, they want to create their own companies. Even even myself, I have this idea of, okay, one day I might start my own company and try to do things differently, but things don't work the way that you always expected to. And you're always yeah. going to sit on the pitfalls of trying to get things to work. Like like you said, like trying to sell the application is much more, it's try to sell your services is even harder than doing the service itself. Because you already accustomed yourself to to do this, yes. and you put yourself in a very uh, uncomfortable, you put yourself in the uncomfortable zone of talking with people, and something that we in the IT world we haven't done much, because yeah. you're just sitting in front of a screen. I want to write some code. Someone else handled the business. I don't care about the business part of it. I just gonna write some code. I want to achieve A, B, and C, and that's it. But once you reach a position that you try to sell a service or to do something. You're, you're going to be facing with people. You're going to start developing, uh, uh, let's say, social skills much more. You need to understand which kind of the client you're going to deal with, if it's uh, the kind of client that you want to deal with on a short term, on a long term, kind of those things. Totally, you don't, totally. You don't learn them you don't learn them through business books. There's no business book that kind of come up and tell you like, oh, this is how you operate on this kind of... No, it doesn't work this way. It doesn't work that way. And it's even something in the IT world where you find someone who, who writes the code, he brings someone who's already like done the business and they just cooperate with each other and they just do it. Yeah, totally. And and but things have changed, right? The last six years of what I was from what I did, I just like I did this like six years ago. And six years, a lot of things have changed. You're seeing more startups coming up. You're seeing more incubators coming in to help startups. If you have a certain idea, if you're able to build a prototype and show that there's a value in the market, you can actually go and get uh, like bootstrap you bootstrap yourself with some money or then get some angel funding for example and then prove that your product actually works right and that's where then marketing comes in and this time selling is not something you need to always do face to face you can but if you're b2b yes you definitely still need to have some face to face but if you're trying to have a global reach you're actually looking into more of online marketing and more of growth hacking and, and there's a lot of stuff that's happened in the last six years that's changed uh, the game in a certain way uh, but yeah i mean uh, definitely i mean um, uh, there's uh, there's more um, appetite for for building products now than it was 6 years ago everyone at that time you wanted to just become a system integrator now everyone doesn't want to be a system integrator they want to actually add value to things right um, so uh, you could be a partner who's also doing stuff for the customer but eventually you'll reach a point where you're seeing okay we are seeing 
a common pattern across all these customers let's build a product around it right and then afterwards we can we can help you know like certain customers with that and that's how you achieve scale i'm seeing this more often as a pattern now i know a lot of partners who have like two three products just because they've worked with you know like so many customers um, on the cloud that they've seen okay we can solve this better and they just build a product and then they give it out so surprisingly also that you, not only you you went from the corporate world you built systems you've also went on being an individual person who wanted to be an independent uh, consultant you also have a PMP and scrum master certification yes <laughs> that's that's something that we don't see in software developers much these days because there's a, there's something pretty interesting about those two things is that those two things you can actually start an entire industry on your own and go towards it and you can ditch software development you can just like okay i'm i'm not going to work in software development anymore i'm going to shift towards management and you have yeah. those two certifications that can help you choose management yeah. yet you still you still you still actually do software development you didn't go towards management so, which is really I mean, weird it's it's interesting and i would say i mean i i would say in that in that sense i started uh, started going ahead of the curve a bit what happened was uh, until uh, let's say 2015ish um, in it you would always have only two career tracks right if you start as a software developer you reach a point where you become a tech lead and then you would diverge um, so either you start becoming a project manager and a, or a, or a developer manager or delivery manager or else you continue becoming like okay an architect or a systems architect or something else that's changed in the last like 6 to 7 years already and when i did this i did this uh, i did the cert in 2019 i believe and at that point of time i was already seeing that there was a change where you were having tech leadership uh, who needed to be technical but also needed to have the management chops right so you need you needed the people like head of engineering for example uh, you needed people who are uh, who know how to uh, leverage and build a technical roadmap but also at the same time help come help people uh, to you know uh, in teams and all to actually grow better so you're talking about helping in prioritizing the roadmap you're helping in trying to understand how to get work done one of the challenges i had in agile and i'm i'm being pretty honest about this a lot of people think it's rosy and all it isn't um a lot of times uh, we see that with companies um uh, which i've seen over the years i mean it's it's less to do with how i'm working right now but even before aws was that uh, a lot of people take agile as a concept and then they say okay we they go and then they say okay we have to be agile so what they do is they'll take okay who is the most loudest right now and as well okay it's scrum let's take the scrum playbook and then let's implement everything from scrum which is like let's have a storyboard let's have stories let's have points let's do all these meetings every two weeks we're going to do a, a sprint planning we'll do this we'll do that and you suddenly bring this whole culture which was non existent in a company and then dump it on to engineers whose job was just okay let's focus on delivering this part of the code right and they were working in a certain way now you time box them and you put it so i always had this um, had uh, i always had this thing with, uh, with where scrum which was what predominantly we were using at that time uh, it rubbed uh, rubbed me the wrong way right and um, until 2019 i was not um, pretty much for a lot of the ceremonies as they call it in the scrum world for the things that we do a lot of meeting i would say why do you need me in a meeting right i'm i'm a coder like i said right builders we just, we just like sitting in front of the system and building stuff breaking stuff that's basically what i used to do even as an architect i used to write code um as a high level code at least in that sense but in 2019 um, i started looking at uh, what happens next right from my from my role perspective from a solutions architect perspective i started noticing that if i wanted to become an engineering manager i needed to start understanding how 
to deliver stuff, right? How do I make sure that the team that I'm going to manage or the teams that I manage are being made accountable for the things that they have to deliver on? And how do I make sure that they are also enjoying what they're doing, right? It's not only just about giving tasks and telling them, okay, hey, you know what? You have to deliver this by X timeline. That's the first time, and I'm being super honest, right? And this is going to be broadcast record. That's the first time I picked up the Scrum Guide and I read it. I did not read the Scrum Guide before that. And I that's when I had the first, I understood my first mistake. I should have read the Scrum Guide before because when I read the Scrum Guide, I was just astonished by how simple and how straightforward the Scrum Guide was, number one. And number two, how the thing everything is, is was different. Huh? The thing is, is that it looks very straightforward, but implementing it is not straightforward exactly. so, at all. So the, so the second step was, I then I, I took that understanding and I saw what we are doing is not Scrum. <laughs> so I was like, what exactly are we doing? And I started having these conversations within the company, right? And of course, a lot of the managers and all, they were, they were pretty open to understanding, okay, what we are doing right, what we are doing wrong. But there was one thing that was missing when I was doing these conversations. I didn't have credibility. I mean, who am I? I'm an architect and I'm an engineer. I'm coming to build stuff. I was already known as someone who was saying that he doesn't want to be part of the meetings. Of course, he's going to say that this is not Scrum, right? So I did whatever what uh, any engineer would do. I went out to prove a point. So I sat down in one of the weeks after I had run the, uh, read the Scrum Guide. I actually understood a lot of stuff that happened. And then I wrote the exam. And I, I cleared the exam. And then I go back to my company and I say, hey, you know what? I am a Scrum master right now. And everyone's like, oh, you could actually do that? I'm like, yes, it's doable. And then I gave them ideas on how I think this makes a lot of sense from an engineering perspective. Because uh, I told them, even though I don't have, even though I don't become a scrum master officially, I know how the work needs to be done now. Because it makes sense. And I said, I believe every engineer should do the Scrum Master certification because it gives them an insight on how they can structure their, their stories properly. It gives them insight on how to do the planning, how to actually execute. The Scrum Guide is all just about how do you reach your outcome. That's all it is, right? And a lot of the ceremonies that we talk about in Scrum got added by X number of people later down the line from different companies and stuff. So uh, that gave me insight into that. And that's when this discipline of engineering managers, you know, becoming uh, owners, technical owners, and but also understanding how to do project delivery. I started seeing this more often in the industry. Now you're seeing that you're having new positions come up in the IT industry, like staff engineer, for example, right? And then you're having these technical managers that are coming in. You have like a chief product officer that's come in. These are all things that are stemming from this aspect of, okay, hey, you know what? I know how to... Uh, how to like take a requirement and then cut it down into stories. How do I tie this back into a valuable product that my user wants? So that's kind of like the trend I started seeing. And then I I started investing time in in all of these things, right? Scrum and then the PMP stuff. And uh, I think, the thing th- is, there's a lot that's helped me. Yeah. There's a thing that you you actually did the certification just for the sake of proving a, for- a point that you're credible about Scrum and managing uh, teams. Does this actually apply the exact same thing for AWS certifications? So if, let's say, I want to implement something on AWS, I pitched in something, someone will say, okay, but you're not credible enough to actually pitch this kind of thing. I would have some sort of certifications to prove that I am credible in this kind of thing, or this the latter is not exactly the same. So that uh, that really, really depends on uh, the person who you're talking to, right? So the, the like they say, right, the saying, the beauty is beauty is in the eye of the beholder. With certifications also, a lot of it uh, depends on what you're bringing to the table. So what I believe, at least, and what we see in AWS also is that um, a lot of the certifications that I have done, they usually are a way for me to validate that my knowledge is 
in line with what is expected from that body of knowledge, right? From whether it's Scrum or whether it's AWS. And then when I go and speak to customers or whether I go and speak to like a potential employer who I would expect them to hire me, I don't expect them to know everything from uh, the stuff, right? For example, the cloud, for example, just because I'm, I'm uh, just because I'm certified, I have a lot of these certifications. The customer who, I mean, the employer who I'm going to may not actually know much about the cloud. That's the reason they're talking to you, right? Because you're saying that you're certified, that you're X, or Y, and they're expecting that when you join the company that you can actually bring that knowledge and then you can come in. For them, it's a validation of sorts. Does that mean that every person who's certified knows AWS? I would say no. Now, the way that works is that you need to be someone when you're preparing for the certification, you should always have hands-on knowledge, right? And um, when you're actually using AWS, you go and you use the console, you deploy something on AWS, you get that knowledge in. And then when you do the certification, I mean, the certification is just, a val- like I said, it's a validation, right? It just says, okay, you know XYZ now. But it's that hands-on knowledge that you've built that is more valuable to any employer that you're going to go to in the future or your current employer or your startup or the, the team that you're working on. So um, a lot of the, uh, the certifications I have done, I've actually done it always from that perspective. Even if it was the Scrum one, which was to prove a point, it was also based on the knowledge that I had done Scrum already. I had done Agile for many years. In fact, I started Agile using Agile in, in Huawei in 2007, right? 2007, 2008 is when we started that, Agile over that, there. That's a, that's a very long time. Exactly. So we are, I've been doing Agile for a long time, but the difference was always in the implementation. And that's kind of like what what helped me over the years. I knew what we were doing was not right. That's basically what happened. So then it was easy to read things like the Scrum Guide and then do that. So with that certification, it enabled me to say, okay, fine, I have a cert. It validated my knowledge. But when I go to you, I'm actually going to be sharing my experience. I'm not going to say, hey, I'm certified, so listen to me, right? So I would want you to listen to my experience. And that's what I would expect with any person who is getting certifications, even if it's the AWS one, right? So you are doing the solutions architect certification. I would expect that, okay, you've at least done some architecture, right? You've designed some systems on AWS. You've actually done XYZ and then you've, okay, built a static website, even something as simple as that. Were you able to like design it in a certain way? Did you understand the trade-offs behind hosting it in a certain way? Did you use CloudFront in a certain way? And things like that. So, I would expect that knowledge when I'm when I'm actually seeing someone is certified. Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, certifications as such, I would say if I see someone who has a certification, I would say, okay, prove it, right? Tell me about what you have done uh, when you're learning about the cert. What was the application that you deployed, and then you did the stuff. So yeah, I would say certifications are still a necessity in this industry. Yeah, but the thing is, is that anyone can just learn the content of the certification and just pass it. Like, uh, for example, you can go and learn the solution architect. You can still do the exam and you can still pass, even if you haven't touched AWS that much because there are just common stuff, except except for the solution architect professional. That is a tough, that, that, that exam is really tough. Like people say it's three hours and they say it's not enough over how tough it is because yeah. of the use case. Yeah. It's like you have to earn it. It's, you it's have not to about earn it, right? you have to earn it. Yeah, and you have to see it from the employer's perspective also, right? Like I said, I mean, there are employers who are still new to the cloud and they use the certification as a validation. You as an employee or someone who's applying for jobs, you need to make sure that the certification just gets your foot in the door. But that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get a job because of that, right? You still need to show the experience. And you should be, I mean, uh, as someone in this industry for so many years, one thing I've understood is you should always try to show that you're bringing value to a customer or an employer whenever you work with them. Or else you shouldn't be doing the job. I mean, it's as simple as that. Um, give what may, I mean, whatever it is about money and all these other things. I would always say that, okay, I would want to put... But the, 
But the problem is, is that they have this like buzzwords. And you know, if you have this kind of certification, your entry job is like 150K a year. You saw those kind of posts. Like they, they to try to tell you, to sell you to, to actually get the certificates. It's much more than just getting the certificate. It, it's a good thing that it's trying to incentivize people. It's like, oh, if you got the certificate, then you can earn this much in a, in a year. But mm-hmm. that doesn't guarantee you're gonna get it. That's one. Yeah, I've and seen I've should... seen uh, different posts like that from third party bodies, and I'm I would say I mean it's up to them if they have data for that to support it. I mean, great. Uh, I mean, in our case, especially from from an AWS perspective, what we are seeing is that the certifications are there to validate your knowledge, right? It's it's for you to show that okay, you have experience on X Y Z. We give the guides, and then you have a lot of third party uh, options available from courses. If you see a lot of the courses that are out there for uh, for the the certifications, right? The solutions architect professional, especially most of them are demo heavy. They're all hands-on lab heavy where they actually tell you to do this, do this, do this, to learn everything. So even the trainers out there, um, like, I mean, the popular ones are Stephen Marek's course from Udemy, right? He has a lot of courses he's done with himself and with other people. Then you have Tutorials Dojo uh, done by John Bosso, where they have a lot of practice exams and a lot of uh, cheat sheets and everything. They have done this all from experience and everything is focusing on hands-on knowledge. They're actually showing, okay, fine. They show the videos, they show the text, and this is what you should be doing. And if you are at least doing those labs, at least you're actually building that experience. So that's kind of like how you would want to get started. Yes, there are people who would come and say, okay, if you do X certification, you'll get Y uh, Y salary. I mean, guess what? Like I said, I mean, I keep telling this, but I've been in this industry for 16 years and I've been hearing this uh, certification thing since the beginning, right? In my time, it used to be CCNA. If you do a certification in Cisco, you would get a job. Um, When I was in uni, that's what they told me. I didn't do the certification. Two years later, I find out from my seniors that there are so many people having certificate for Cisco. There are not enough people using Cisco appliances so i mean who's gonna get a job right so yeah it's, it's like, really, really back then back then it's like uh, it's like if you want to get into the into the job market cisco and then later on oracle and then it, you see a lot of things just don't they don't make sense just like a, a way to sell it's it's marketing it's, so so for companies like that right when you cisco and all that that networking certification is actually pretty valuable i've met a lot of system engineers and security engineers and network engineers who now work on the cloud and they said that there's a lot of fundamentals that they thought again it goes back to employers in general right what they perceive as value through certification you take the certification for saying okay this person has validated the knowledge but i still need to know whether they bring value to the table or not that due diligence has to be done by an employer either way right you should not take it per se as a value and do this but at least from if i if i see a lot of resumes that people don't have certifications people don't have certifications it would really depend on whether i'm willing to take my chance with people who don't have certification but have more value in terms of projects and some employers do that some employers don't right even in aws when you want to get hired in aws as a solutions architect you don't have to have an aws certification a lot of people don't know this uh, you don't need to have an AWS certification to apply for a solutions architect job or a cloud architect job. Once you join, it's a different story. That's when you need to ramp up and learn these things because you want to give value back to the customer. But you don't need it as a job. We don't, as an employer, we don't see it as a requirement as such. So we have other ways to validate the knowledge. Yeah, but uh, it depends on the type of company. Uh, if let's say, for example, you're the kind of company that can get newcomers and you can teach them to do things and, and to work on them, it's quite different than a company that's, let's say, on a minimum budget and on limited resources that they want to hire someone who already have the experience so they don't lose money on a newcomer to do mistakes. That, that's the kind of thing I start to realize. It's like 
in a big corporation, let's say like AWS, they do have the luxury of if someone didn't have the certifications, can enter because he's not going to cause a huge issue in the company. But when you have, let's say, a small scale company of, let's say, like 10 employees, when a newcomer comes in, that newcomer can cause issues for those 10 employees that can slow down the business and it doesn't work the way. So what, what we've what done, I mean. yeah, so what we have done over the years is um, even as a solutions architect, we have helped a lot of customers build that muscle for training and development within their organization, right? So the idea is that they could take someone who doesn't have full knowledge of the cloud, who's not certified, bring them in, and then over a period of a couple of months, they could ramp them up and then get them certified, right? Through the programs and all which they do internally. So again, it goes back to this whole thing of, okay, as an employer, how do you perceive this the value that the person is bringing? If you think that, uh, you need someone who is uh, certified to actually do stuff on the cloud. You still need to make sure that they have they have the you know the experience to do it. They have some experience with the show that okay we have done X Y Z. We have some projects on GitHub, for example, that we have done X Y Z and things like that. I mean, as an employer, there is a certain due diligence that you would need to do. At the same time, if you it's someone who's not certified, if they have but a very good impressive record, because I've met a lot of people who say that they don't you know, get certified for whatever reasons. They have their own reasons for that. But they have pretty impressive work that they've done on AWS or on any cloud for that matter. Yeah, I've seen people who are like, like uh, they've worked in the cloud for like 10 years, but they don't just don't have a certificate. Yeah. Like so they, they know I, the ins and outs, but they exactly, don't yeah. have a certificate. So, so I would say, I mean, I would say, uh, is, should you do a certification? I would say yes. Does it mean it guarantees that you'll get a job somewhere? No, it doesn't. It depends on the employer directly and how they do it. So you need to do your part anyway. You do your certification, you have experience hands-on, so that wherever you go, you show the value. That's what you need to do. You need to show the value based on what you do. And I think this uh, this thing, um, this uh, approach of actually doing stuff with experience in hand really helps because then certification creates an amplification of what you've already built, if you, if you know what I mean, right? So you already have this experience You've done the certification now. When anyone sees, okay, you're certified, and then they come in and see, okay, this is all the work they've done, they'll be like, wow, this guy's like this. This person's good. I mean, this person has having a lot of experience. So that's the way I would I would put it. Um, so I do certifications in that manner always to show that I've I've ramped up, I've leveled up to a certain level. Okay, I've done the certification now. It shows that I've done X Y Z. Um, so the fact that we provide certifications and the pro- the fact that we provide certification vouchers is all for people to at least learn and level up, right? Because once you level up, you are also increasing the chances that you will get noticed either by your existing employer or by people outside or for building your own stuff on the cloud. So, Speaking of uh, experience and uh, certifications and you've been in the software development field for quite a while, so you have some kind of experience. Uh, what are the common issues that you faced in that field and the least common issues? Common issues uh, with, with developers. Uh, common issues, too, they're very common. But uh, okay. let's say like the, the standing out common issues that let's say whenever you work at a company or whenever you work with a startup or that they, they fall into common like common pitfalls or they fall into common places. In the software development field, they're quite common. Either you've actually faced with them in the past or you've seen startup face with those similar pitfalls in the past. Yeah, so I think... Um, it, uh, so the developer space is pretty interesting. When you see uh, with the kind of technologies and the frameworks and the languages that are being thrown at us every day, um, you need to have some basic fundamentals in place always. So I've always been a firm believer um, over the years, especially this has been proven that you need to have your computer science fundamentals always right because the technologies may change on top, but a lot of the fundamentals still remain the same. 
right? Um, with the way you approach uh, programming and coding in general, how you do data structures, for example, a lot of these things. Um, some people, they learn this along the way, they do courses, and now it's it's more available, right? You have like Stanford CS50, for example, and then you have the one from Harvard and a lot of other places, MIT, for example, they have their own uh, computer science uh, program, which is online, everyone can go and watch. This is stuff I always, I always advise people who are new to the field to actually go and watch so that they understand how they can build the fundamentals. But beyond that, you'll notice that when you join as a junior developer and then you start slowly ramping up, your skill to build code and build applications is definitely there. That is a requirement, right? You need to be able to, at least as much as possible, put code into production properly and make sure that it's working fine. It's able to scale decently. But you will start slowly seeing that with with that added skill, you need to also add some other skills like team building, a team uh, uh, dynamics, right? How do you actually work within a team? Because you are not going to be uh, just one person building the whole requirement. You may actually be working with multiple people. How do you work with other teams, for example? How do you actually start looking at uh, working with uh, managers around you? And uh, a lot of times, uh, I learned this actually. Um, in fact, I learned this like mid mid in my career was that uh, when you work with managers, for example, you always need to understand that uh, you have multiple, they will have multiple people who are reporting into them. You may think that they're exclusive, you may think your manager is exclusive to you, but you actually have a lot of other people who are reporting into the same person. So you need to understand from their point of view what they're actually looking at. And then, and if you notice, a lot of them would always try to support self-starters who would work in ambiguous environments. The reason that happens, and I understood this like overall later is that you need to be able to uh, work with people who are able to go and solve problems and come back and tell you, hey, I was trying to solve this problem. I did it with two, three other ways. It did not work. So I'm looking at doing a third way. Do you think I should go ahead? Right? Instead of you going and asking the manager what to do, you're actually going and giving the manager, these are the options that are there. This is what I think we should do. But you tell me, I mean, which direction I should move in. You're giving the manager options, which basically means the manager now doesn't have to like sit and do the thinking for you. And a lot of people don't recognize this. They always, I have met people who've been seven years, 10 years in the industry, and then they always expect the manager to come and tell them, do this, do this. If they don't do, they're like, okay, khalas, I will not do anything beyond this. And that that is something I would say developers really need to learn. And if you are a go-getter from the beginning, it's great because then you're already trying to look at solutions. But you need to know uh, what to pitch and when to pitch, right, to other people. It, and in this case, I'm not saying if someone comes in and says, okay, Let's use the latest and greatest framework because the the one which you're using, which was just one year old, is old already. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking I about. Got your, I got your point into this, but the thing is, is that not every single company does let those kind of go getters pitch in all the time. It's it's quite difficult. Like uh, you might, some people might have the luxury of being in a company that is much more understanding to adopt new kind of technologies or new kind of methods, but not everyone would adopt for that let's say if you work in a legacy uh, in a legacy company that has like legacy code that's quite hard to maintain it's quite difficult for them to just take this kind of leap whereas if you're working at a startup or a company that has this kind of luxury it's much more easier for those go-getters to pitch in and say hey maybe this uh, maybe if we wrote the this part of the code in golang or rust it might perform much more better than writing it in javascript they might have the luxury of saying, okay, we can perform that. But if you're working in, let's say, a enterprise old application that's written in ASP.NET or Java 2E or any kind of like old old school, uh, old school kind of thing, it's quite difficult for them to like pitch in. They would say, we would just rather focus on doing the project itself rather than just putting ourselves in a, in a new pitfall or a problem 
and try to solve both of them at the same time. Yeah, this is where the third lesson comes in, which is basically always translate what you want to do into business value for the company. Developers don't learn this from anywhere, right? We don't. We are not taught this in universities. We are not taught this in any kind of courses. This basically comes along the way uh, when you're actually building stuff. So, um, taking Ransard as a classic example over here, uh, a lot of the things that we implemented over there was always tied to a certain business value. But what are we bringing to the table which would help the business to grow further? And we're not talking only about revenue. We're talking about, okay, the speed at which they could do X, Y, Z because we implemented this. So it was less about going and pitching to them. Hey, let's use Node.js or let's use NoSQL. I mean, who who in the business would actually understand what is NoSQL going to help me in? What they would understand is, okay, the speed at which I was doing a process X has now got halved or you know is reduced by percentage. That conversation is very important for developers especially if you are someone who's looking at growing further in your career path right and especially if you want to move towards a point where either you want to grow in the same company or a different company where you see your skills are going to be used better and you can start showing value to the business stakeholders in that case or if you want to even do a startup because guess what when you build a startup or a pro and you're building a product in a startup your users not going to ask you hey are you using the latest version of golang they're going to be asking you, okay, are you able to solve this problem or not? So a lot of, as a developer over the years, I have learned to let go. And I think that's the most important lesson over here. As a developer, you need to be able to learn to let go of stuff that you've built and learned and be ready to accept what the customer and user is also looking at. Like they may be right because they are actually using your product, right? At the same time. And then when you're even going back to... Even, even, even if it's like not something comfortable to do. Define comfortable. Let's say, for an example, I'm comfortable in this specific uh, framework or I'm comfortable in this specific language. I might resolve to do this in this language because I'm comfortable with it. Some of them just uh, hit the plateau when it comes to learning, and it's quite difficult for them to learn new things. They just stick with what they've learned. Yeah. So with learning, especially when it comes to technology and frameworks, especially, I have a pet peeve. I always tell this to people that the frameworks don't matter. Or uh, it doesn't matter if you, I mean, and Node.js is a very classic example of this. I mean, how many how many build tools have we changed in the last uh, five years already? From npm to to Grunt to Yarn to back to npm now to Webpack and to something else. Does that mean that someone who's using npm doesn't doesn't know what they're doing? No, it's not like that. So there's a difference between the the framework and the tool that you use, which you need to learn. And there's, uh, there's a difference between the architecture, the system design, and how you design systems. This part of designing systems is something that you need to learn and then slowly bring into the company. But this thing of tools, I would always say, okay, does it make sense for us to spend some engineering time to actually learn this and then throw out whatever we have already built when whatever we are already using is delivering value to us, right? But if it is something that changes the way we deliver and makes it better, to give you an example, in Randstad, when before uh, when I joined in, we used to use uh, Team Foundation Services (TFS), which is a version control system by Microsoft at that point of time. Right? It's a single single uh, trunk. Everything gets checked in, and then when you check out files, you actually lock the files, and because of which nobody can actually commit files. Git was already there at that point of time. GitHub was already being used. We were and we were just starting to get Bitbucket into the into place. It took me one year to train the team to use Git. Why was that? It was not because they didn't want to use Git. They wanted to learn it. But the, uh, the thing was, a lot of the thinking and the workflows, which they were used to, were all TFS focused. Like, this is how we know how to check out files, how to check in files, how to do conflict reviews. Their day-to-day tasks were actually different from what they would do in Git. And it took time to change that. So that change management, it takes a lot of time, especially in this. So when you're an engineering manager, you will always see, okay, when I take a tool, it's not about the latest and greatest. Is it something 
one thing is okay deliver value to the organization but the second thing is okay how much engineering effort are we going to put to change all of this in git of course it made sense for us to move to that because ci cd tooling and a lot of other things helped us over the years where we were able to automate a lot of the things right um in this case that helped but in terms of um, i've had this conversation with our teams earlier in in uh, ransomware where uh, we used to say okay npm has come now yarn has come and then the team changed it to yarn and then after that something else came i'm like so now you were going to change to what something else um why do you want to like spend time on this again and again right and they realized it I and mean, it's not like uh, it didn't change i mean guess what now npm is back again everything is back in npm i'm like how many times are we going to keep going round and round on this uh, apparently so, i just realized like uh, there's uh, npm there's yarn there's a uh, pn uh, pmp something PMP, like yes, it, yes. It's, there's I, i just realized that there's an entire new package manager that i've never heard of yeah. that it does one specific thing which is it it couples the packages way much different than yarn and npm is that it utilizes them much more better i was like i was like can i just you're using npm at the end of the day yeah all of them even yarn at the same time they get packages from npm yeah and they yep. didn't even reinvent something they just changed the internal structure they did some small yeah. tweaks that and, makes and, some changes and then you see somebody it. in the community and some companies start using it okay good for them it worked for them but then that doesn't mean we have to use it so again right with technology adoption also you need to do due diligence you need to make sure who you're actually giving um, um you know like uh, value to your customers you're going to give value to is it going to increase the the velocity at which you're going to deliver if yes and if the engineering effort is valued i mean is is i mean the amount of time you spend to change that if it works great then go ahead and do it but if it's not then you don't need to i mean there's still a lot of companies who are still using java there are still some companies who are using uh, um, i mean older versions of of whatever programming language is there and some of them are coming back in vogue again so it doesn't matter i mean if you're not a golang company that doesn't mean that you uh, you will actually um, work with the uh, Uh, you're working with legacy stuff legacy stuff is less about the technology to aspect to be honest if you ask me it's more about how you design your systems and how you're able to you know change the architecture in such a way that it doesn't cripple the system right if your application stops working because you change the architecture then there's something fundamentally wrong somewhere in the application and it's less to do with technology of course over the years technology also changes right asp.net for example i mean who's going to use that now because you want to like increase it so yes that and that helped us right engineering effort we put in some effort but we were able to get so much speed just because we changed that i mean that's that's a engineering decision that everyone would make so uh, that's i would say this is what it is right so if you notice a lot of the lessons are given it's not about hey use rust or use golang or use this the technology and the language is definitely a choice in certain form um, but beyond that it's also about you know what's the value you're delivering in the end because as software engineers we should always remember when you're building stuff uh, you're having somebody else who needs value out of it it's not just you building code over there yeah i got your point into this but the thing is it also returns back to what type of company you're working in and if you do have the luxury of doing this certain thing or not which plays a huge role in doing it i mean there are there have been people i've met some people when i did interviews and i'm happy i met them where they would say that my company does not uh, use the latest and the greatest and then i asked them how do you learn they said i spend my own time and i learn stuff it's it's okay it works that way also so just because and today's world you have more options to do open source projects right i know people who learned uh, the cloud because they started doing projects on their own learned from the documentation learned through tutorials and videos and built their own projects on github and kept it as a portfolio 
if the chance ever comes in their company where they say one day hey we have to move to the cloud they could always go back and show hey you know what i've built all these examples you know i'm happy to help or if they say that okay um i want i i think i want to spend more time building this and i don't see it in my current company you can always move to another company right there will always be another company that would deliver value and today's world there's more there's more remote work happening i mean i've seen more remote work with people than before in the last two years so i'm sure there's opportunity out there and uh, for the companies who are uh, who are like uh, you know like trying to hire people also there are people who are having like code bases that are built in golang and rust and they don't have enough people for example you just need to find those companies and then start working for them so yes it depends on on the company it but it depends also as well as the developer who tried to pitch in multiple times and he never actually got a successful attempt you reach the position that you get frustrated uh, to the point that you don't want to learn anymore because you feel like okay what's the whole point of learning in the first place so let's say for example if i want to learn a specific language uh, and i pitched it in the company and the company just like they said okay we're not going to use it you reach the position okay why do i want to learn new stuff if uh, the current job that i'm currently in is not going to support it right. you got this point of view like some developers get frustrated because they 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 do yeah. have the they do have this kind of intuition about learning new things but they didn't have the right medium to express it so i've i've seen i've seen examples of that and i would i would it always goes back to this if you feel that the stuff that you've learned needs to be part of your day job and it's not part of your current company and you can't like change the way they work right now then that's opportunity for you to look outside right but if you think that you're someone who can who can handle the work that's already there but do this in your spare time because there are a lot of people who do pet projects and they run their own side gigs internally uh, or they run projects saas projects or whatever else you want to call it and they they are happy with that because what they say is that this is an avenue where i can i can try out new stuff without breaking anything in you know my current day job and th- that works also so it really depends on what outcome you want with that new skills if you're saying you want to change the way my current company works and you want to do this and okay you've done all that you could which is basically deliver value to the people and go back to the company and say to the uh, to your stakeholders say i think if we do this this is what's going to happen and believe me a lot of them would be open for the conversation if you structure it in a way where you're actually showing that there is value versus just going and saying i want to do angular uh, because i think that i'm good at it and you're not giving me any angular work right that's not a conversation that's going to go anywhere you need to show some value assuming that you've done all of that and you see that okay fine it's not happening then it's your decision whether you say okay fine am i happy with doing this stuff outside like you know open source projects and and things like that or should i look for something else I mean, that's a decision each person has to make there's no right or wrong over that it really depends and this thing of what we keep saying over we need to always keep learning something new i mean reach my age and then you'll get an idea of what learning new actually means at that point of time it's, it's currently, less about I'm- yeah I'm currently 24 so I think I have a long road. Yeah, a long road. Yeah, exactly. And I have, which is good. I have good, a very right? long road. Yeah, you you start long road. So you you'll notice that you'll start becoming more picky about what you learn. You don't you won't be you won't be able to learn everything. Let me put it out there already to all the people who are going to be listening. You can't learn everything. It's just impossible, right? If the amount of information, the amount of stuff that we're having every day, it's it's amazing insane. right yeah it's insane and amazing at the same time so uh, you slowly would start picking things that you really want to learn and dive deeper into eventually that's going to happen and then you start noticing patterns that's where you start seeing okay if i learn x it actually makes me understand all these other things and uh, 
Where it's do you just, implement stuff, it depends on There's you, stuff yeah. like indirectly stuff. There's indirect stuff that you learn actually and get can be implemented in another language much more easier. So it can. You, can, it can. you can learn the pattern. It's not just about the language itself. It is, it is. So I, I always say, so me, I'm, I mean, even though I started as a Java programmer and I've done .NET also in Randstad, um, I have done PHP code, I've done Python also. I'm, I'm someone who can get into uh, a code base if I don't know the language and then within a couple of hours, I can understand what the code is doing and then start fixing stuff. To give you an example, uh, so I'm sure you've used Hacker News, right? You've used the Hacker News yeah. uh, yeah, okay. You know that the code base for Hacker News is actually online. It's available. Yeah, it's, you can it's open source. It. It's open source. So it's a version of Lisp, which Paul Graham actually wrote. When I was in India in 2010, um, me and some f- folks from the ecosystem, the, the community ecosystem, we wanted to build a Hacker News for India. And what we did was we actually uh, asked uh, Paul Graham if we can actually, you know, take the same code base and then use it. And he was like, okay, you can, but you can't use the name. We actually have that email thread. I have it somewhere internally somewhere. And uh, what I did at that point of time was I took the code base and I started learning Lisp out of nowhere, right? And within within like three, four days, I started ha- making some modifications saying, okay, fine, we had our own website. We call it hackerstreet.in, if I remember correctly. And uh, that's what we did. So you eventually reach a point where you start seeing patterns in the code, like you said, and you will be able to dive into anybody's code base and say, this is how it works. But I think this, the case is a little bit different when using Lisp. I mean, semantics is different. I mean, let's, let's, not, let's, let's be real. Let's not it's go into the semantics. Let's not go into the semantic side of things. But the idea is that um, you kind of like understand what what skills you want to pick up immediately and what skills you can gradually pick up whenever if you need to, or if you don't need to also. So that goes back to the whole thing of defining what do you mean by learning something new. If you have a certain outcome, then you will know. A lot of people still, I think, are trying to grasp at okay, learning something new doesn't mean I have to know the latest and the greatest. I would say no. Uh, you've. Uh, I'm going to shift to another uh, topic. Is that you've uh, shifted from uh, Malaysia, India, China, and UAE quite often in your career? What do you see the between each one of them from a culture, tech community, and tech ecosystem perspective? Like similarly, right now you just said about the Hacker News version of India as an example. What do you see any kind of difference between those kind of countries that you've been in? Yeah, I mean it's it's been in a, it's been an interesting journey, right? Over the countries, I think I would always suggest people to move countries and then, uh, especially different regions, because it gives you insight into the way they operate, even from a from a standard day to day living perspective, but and also from a technology perspective. So, um, primarily with with Malaysia, when when I moved in over there, I noticed that, the, and I was moving from from here in Dubai, where I saw that my skills were not fitting the demand in the market. And I moved to a place in Malaysia where I started seeing that there is a demand in the market for my skills. And there were not enough people who could actually deliver on that. On the cloud, for example, was a classic example. We were still early on cloud adoption in Malaysia at that point of time. Very few companies had actually started doing uh, workloads on AWS. Six years now has passed and there's a lot that has changed. And uh, one of the things that we noticed over there was that people were hungry for change from a technology perspective, but they didn't have enough people would level up and that's where uh, i noticed that tech communities played a massive role in, in enabling people in the know so for example aws was uh, or the cloud in general was something new over there the, what you would do is you would have meetups and community events running from different groups that would talk about the cloud that would show demos that would show hands-on labs some would run a workshop i was part of a couple of workshops where uh, we did training for 
you know, different technologies and said, okay, let's deploy a front end or a back end or a mobile app, for example, and then use XYZ tech. And you would see the crowds that would come just for this, right? You would get like 50 people, 100 people on a weekend to come in and learn this. And then the best part is when they actually learn this and then they go back and then they they come after a few, you don't see them for a few months and then suddenly they come back and tell a story where they say, because you showed XYZ, I was able to do this in my company and then I did this. And that became a norm in Malaysia, right? And I, I used to see this as a, as a, as a way for enabling the, the tech ecosystem. Because now what you're doing is with the community at scale to enable people on the ground who didn't have that skill, you're actually making them viable uh, folks to hire for the companies, right? The companies who are looking for talent. So you're invariably helping the talent pool by growing these people. I say in, in Middle East, um, in Middle East, North Africa, we are still early on that stage. We are slowly getting there. It's going to take some time. And that's where, I mean, to folks who are listening in over here, uh, there is a lot of work that we need to do in terms of enabling the people on the ground. Mm. We I used to see, at least in Malaysia, that uh, companies would step up and then do free workshops also, right? For people to come in and do, okay, let's do this, let's do X, let's do Y. And they would have people who are passionate about just teaching, right? They just want to come and teach and then after the show, okay, let's do X, Y, Z. And we have some people in, in the Middle East who are doing this, right? We have some of the videos on, on YouTube already who are sharing about how to do X on AWS and Y on AWS. Uh, one thing over there was that um, um, in, in Malaysia, especially, uh, you had uh, the influence from Singapore, right? So you had a lot of people, uh, tech companies in Singapore who are doing pretty awesome stuff. There's a lot of unicorns in Singapore also. And that influence kind of like rubbed off on Malaysia also, where they would say, okay, fine, we want to also build something similar. And Malaysia also has a couple of unicorns now because of that. So people have that passion to learn over there and then they want to like go and then move on forward. Of course, there are different reasons why, uh, I mean, the pace there is a bit slower compared to, let's say, Singapore and geopolitical and a lot of other stuff. Um, another like, prime example of of how a country could jump in, in 10 years' time is Indonesia. Indonesia is, is a story that's just amazing. It's a case study that I would love to one day discuss on one forum where I can talk about how where Indonesia started from, from a tech ecosystem and how they suddenly got four unicorns out of nowhere that became so massive that those unicorns started providing um, input to the government to change policies on how the government should operate from a tech perspective, from an education perspective, so much so that one of the one of the founders, one of the co-founders for one of the startups, I think Gojek, if I remember correctly, uh, he, he left the company in 2020 and then uh, joined the government. As, uh, as part of the education department, I think as a minister or a sub-minister, because he uh, he believed that um, a lot of stuff that they have seen, they can actually use that to influence the policy to make Indonesia a much more prospective country. And that just was wow, because the idea was that people were not just building a company to make money. They were actually building a company so that they could, they could take the talent pool to the next level and also improve the way the country operates. Right. And uh, a few countries in Asia do this. Uh, China is a prime example of this. China has been doing this for many years. Um, I've seen this from the time in Huawei and even much later, where um, they, they, especially in the last like eight years, 10 years, they've, uh, uh, the ecosystem that they built. I mean, startups as a concept is a bit different over there. I mean, I would not call a lot of them startups. A lot of them still operate from an enterprise perspective. But a lot of them focus on, okay, we are building all these products, we are making profit, but how do we make sure that we are able to also prosper the country at the same time? So you'll see that there's a, there's this, there's this common thread among all these uh, ecosystems where they say, okay, we will improve the talent pool, we'll improve the tech ecosystem, but also how do we push the country forward? And I think that's something that we are 
already starting over here. I can see that like a lot of initiatives happening in different countries. You have the million Arab coders that Sheikh Mohammed in Dubai had started two years ago, which is slowly like showing its fruits over here. You have other countries who are investing in IT and in EIML, doing uh, doing like you know exhibitions, competitions, hackathons. And beyond that, they're also trying to look for people from the community to come in and say, okay, hey, you know what? I want to do X. Can you support me? And that's why the government is saying, okay, fine. You know what? If you want to do X, show me what you want to do and then we can we can see how we can support you. Then we have companies like us, like AWS who are coming in and then helping communities wherever we can from whatever we can provide in terms of, you know, like uh, uh, support for community meetups, events, and even one day community events. So uh, I would say... The tech ecosystem over here is definitely uh, it's it's slowly growing. It's it's getting there. I see there's a lot of camaraderie between uh, a lot of the companies over here, a lot of the startups and partners and everybody else because they're all having this sense of okay, fine, we want to grow, but we'll also take everybody else along for the ride. It's not just for okay, I just want to grow myself, right? It's about also growing other people, and I think that happening now in Mina is is a really good thing. It's a good sign, uh, and we see that uh, that's actually going to help us to to. Uh, to propel ourselves further in terms of tech, in terms of what we build over there. And inshallah, and we have four unicorns already in, in in MENA. I'm hoping to see at least like four folds of that in the next few years, inshallah. The thing is, is that in MENA, you have more countries compared to, let's say, in Asia, where the, comp- let's say, for example, if Indonesia, the size of Indonesia is one country, uh, plays a role is that you can actually get the people and work together. But when you have a set of X amount of countries you have, I think, 22 or 24, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, one of them, Arab countries in the MENA region. It's quite hard oh, to... No. Yeah. It's quite hard to... I think it's 10 in Africa, 12 in uh, in in the Asia part. Yeah, it depends, that, on, depends on who's uh, whose definition of MENA you go with, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it's around 22. So it's quite a hard to operate 22 countries to work together and each one of them have their own policy and they have their own way of dealing with things. So the adoption is is quite happening, but it's going to be way much harder. What, what they're currently doing is that some of the people are just taking their uh, top talent and they're just shooting them to Dubai, as I'm quite seeing it. Mm-hmm. Much more than just advancing the country itself. It's it, this, and I see this as a trend which had happened years ago. This was basically where a lot of the talent used to go to Singapore, and then they used to work in Singapore, and then they would bring all that they have learned and then use it in their country. That's basically what we're seeing right now, right? You have a lot of the companies who are setting a base in Dubai, because Dubai offers certain certain perks in terms of that, right? From a, from a global perspective, from an international hub perspective. Um, the fact that uh, a lot of the companies I've noticed have product teams over here also because it allows them to cater to an international crowd, not only just to their country and, and everybody else. They will have the tech teams across. They would have them in Dubai. They would have them in their own country. Egypt is becoming a massive hub for developers in general. Jordan is another one. Saudi is, is also in its own way growing. And one of the things I see, and there are there are similarities. I'm not saying um, it's it's different. I mean, even though you're saying that it's many countries, I would say it's less about the main number of countries. One thing that there is an advantage is there's a common language across all these 24 countries. Almost common, I would say. The dialects are pretty different. Just I can, dialects. I know yeah, just dialects. But there's but a some of the language. dialects. But some of the dialects are in an entire language. Exactly, yeah. It, depending on which which one you see, right? I'm I'm more. I always o- operate from a fasa side, but I always see uh, the dialects are totally different from my end. But the thing is that um, when you 
get all these people together from different countries in a common place. Like let's say they all come to Dubai and then they work over here and then they level up, right? They first build a community over here and then they level up and then they go back and then start building stuff in their countries. That's where you will start seeing change happening. The thing is, one of the things I noticed in ASEAN, what worked for, and ASEAN has like what, uh, seven, eight, nine countries, if I remember correctly, and each was big in its own, in own perspective. Languages are different, by the way. They all have different languages. They don't speak the same language at all, um, except for like two countries maybe in that case. Now, what what helps over there is that when they go back to the country, they do not go back and say, can the government support me in XYZ? They start working on their idea. And then they start pushing through whatever they can to, you know, build their business. And then at the same time, you know, trying to work with how they can, you know, like get people in the government who can support them. And eventually they reach a point where they are slowly influencing government policy. They don't start with the with the intention immediately, hey, we are starting this company and we're going to influence government policy. It's an outcome. It happens eventually, right? It's a journey that happens. Uh, for companies like Gojek and all, they've been operational for like, what, 10, 12 years, if I remember correctly. And now you're seeing the impact that they're having on the country, right? In terms of policy. So you want to have like a couple of hubs within MENA where you have different developers and builders and operators and even product managers who are all coming together and then mixing and matching in the melting pot of sorts where they're exchanging ideas, not only just about building product, but how to operate better, right? I still see, like, for example, I don't see any, any discussions happening over here in terms of engineering leaders, engineering managers, how to be a better engineer manager, how to actually build a team, how to scale a team. That's something I'm hoping to change. I'm actually starting a couple of things inshallah in the next couple of months over here where you can have more discussions like that um, at least start from Dubai and then take it other places but the idea is that you want to make sure that uh, you're able to uh, build that melting pot have that hub and then take uh, level up people to such a level so that they can go back to their countries and start building stuff over there that's what you need to get started with right it's it's the only way it's going to work if you're going to expect that the government needs to change and then do things you need to be able to be in a position to show to the government, okay, this is what we can do. This is what we're capable of. Help us to do this, right? And uh, it's it has to start from somewhere. And this is where I think is a natural starting point. Some people agree, some people disagree. At least this is what I have seen in this case. I have seen the region grow. One of the things I believe the MENA region has always had from the beginning, and this I'm talking about from the 70s, and, you know, the 60s, 70s and 80s is that entrepreneurial spirit. That has always been there. It's not something that's that's gone anywhere. I, I mean, I, I, I don't know, I've mentioned over here, but I was actually born and brought up in Dubai. So I was here in the 80s. I was, I was born here. And I was... I was privy to a lot of stuff that happened on the ground, right? For From the 80s till the late 90s, and, and then a lot of modernization happened. But there was a time when you could go in the UAE, in Dubai, you could open up a shop anywhere and then, you know, slowly make money, right? You would do business anywhere. That entrepreneurial spirit, it's there. It's, it's definitely over here. We have now governments, different governments trying to build frameworks where they're actually trying to enable people on the ground to say, okay, fine, we will set up all of this infrastructure for you, but you need to come and show value to what you can do. So now we are now at a point where we can actually start going and delivering something, right? Before that, the infrastructure was either not in place or some policies were not there. So the entrepreneurial spirit is there. The question is, how much effort are we going to put in? This is where I see community is going to help a lot because now it's like each country has a certain way of operation. They may be narrowly focused on trying to do tech in a certain way. When they come to places like Dubai or they visit other places and they work over there, they attend the meetups and the conference, they see, okay, hey, you know what? This is actually a different way of working. It opens up their mind. 
right? And they're able to network with a lot of people and then get an idea of, okay, this is how we can work better, build collaborations, build, build those relationships with people across the region, which I see happening right now, right? I see a lot of people in, in Dubai, for example, from different countries, from Lebanon, for example, or from Saudi or from Egypt and all, they come in over here and then they set up teams, they set up hubs, they, they interconnect, they interrelate. Now we just need more communities. We need more like, you know, places where there's more touch points, right with 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 people so that we can share ideas and then actually build stuff together and and then make it grow from there so this conversation we're happening right now in 2022 i'm sure when we do this conversation again another three years there's a lot of things that would have changed inshallah so i'm I'm hoping for the best and I'm, i can see the signs over here it's just that all of us over here and whoever's listening we all need to like step up a bit in terms of uh, what we want to do with the ecosystem yeah but there's one one issue is that uh when you try to state that um, some of them go to Dubai, they get the experience and all of that, but not everyone actually goes back to give back to the community that they were born in. So let's say, take for example, here in Lebanon, some some Lebanese uh, software developers, some of them seniors as well, they went to Dubai, they established a life there, they made a family, they decided to stay there, they never came back and provided the experience that they actually had. They say it's it's not completely worth it anymore because they're already living there. There's no need to go back. Mm -hmm. So there's a problem is that most of the people who are now moving to other countries, they're just not coming back much. And some of those communities are done from local people who are already there trying to prove a point that they can provide a certain thing in their own country. Not someone who's, let's say, for example, who has this experience came back and tried to help them to do it. Yeah, there's there's no straight answer for this. I can tell from experience what I've seen in India, for example, right? So India, we used to have this. We used to call it the brain drain at that time, right? This is also brain drain problem as we call it, right? People leave the country, they level up. I mean, okay, let's say they learn the basics. They do engineering, they do whatever, medical and whatever. They stay in India and then they leave the country. And we're talking about 2000s. A lot of people went to the US. A lot of people went to the UK, Australia, settled down. And they would always, uh, they would at that time come back because they would say, okay, I want to try something back in India. It's my home country and stuff like that. And they would get frustrated. They would stay for a couple of years. They would deplete some of the savings. They would get frustrated with the way the infrastructure works and everything works and they'll go back. The challenge I see, and a lot of, and it's not only me, a lot of people have given insights on this, uh, at least in India. What they say is that people come with the expectation that how it worked in um, the U.S., is how it's going to work over here. You can't come back to a country where that framework doesn't exist and expect it to work in a certain way. It doesn't work like that. What's helped India to become where it is right now from a startup tech ecosystem perspective? I mean, you have a lot of unicorns right now in India, you know, multi-billion unicorns right now running. A lot of them actually were homegrown. People came back from the US and then they started building startups knowing what the what the framework is within India. How can we expect certain things to work? How can we do certain things? And then started operating from that angle. That's number one. Number two, you need to, it's also about hedging your bets. Yes, okay, let's say if 100 people from, from let's say, your country go and then they settle somewhere else and they don't want to come back, you want to make sure that at least one person comes back from the 100 at least right and the only way they will come back is if they see that okay if there is no uh, some people will look at opportunity from a short-term perspective if i do x i should get y within one year for example but there will be out of those 100 there will be at least one person who's willing to give it a shot a long shot as we call it right and then say okay fine i'm going to come in i'm going to set the foundation i'm going to do all of these things it may take a few years but i'm willing to you know place a bet on that and then you have other people helping on that bet this is the only way I have seen it work, right? With India, it, it is a story that's been happening for 15 years. 
Um, I remember when I started in, in Huawei, startups were unheard of in 2005-2006. I slowly started seeing startups popping up in India in 2008-2009. And uh, you got bigger mainstream startups only from 2011 onwards, right? So there was a lot of work happening behind the scenes over the years where people came, started something, went back, came, started something, went back. And then you slowly started seeing these companies grow. So... I would say it's it's all about having more conversations and more people, you know, like trying to go back and then do something. And if the people who want to settle somewhere because they believe that their family has a priority and all that, I mean, it's it's their decision in the end. That's uh, that's the way I see it. But if you're if you're someone who can show that there is value to come back, okay, let's say we do X Y Z, and I mean, there's no there's no concrete way to say okay, this is the formula for this. I'm not saying there's a formula for this. There isn't. This is basically from what I've observed. Is if you show that there is value in X, Y, Z, this is how you're going to get started. We, I, I'm saying this because I saw the same thing play out in Malaysia. Um, so in Malaysia, there's always a complaint. If you go to any of the forums, they always say, we lose our best talents to Singapore, right? And then later, we, can, we lose our best talents to Indonesia because the startups over there became unicorns. But we started seeing, in the, especially in the last three years, just before the pandemic hit, that people were starting to return back to Malaysia and then started to say that, okay, fine. I will work within the infrastructure and the and the framework that the country is providing right now. And hopefully I will make a change in the future where I will be able to influence that. Now there are just like last year, they announced a couple of unicorns have just popped up in, in Malaysia because some people stayed back. They, you know, based on the experience, they did something. So, I mean, it, it really will take effort and it will take time. There's no, there's no clear answer for that. But uh, this is the way at least I've seen it work. I'm going to end the, the episode with one last question. It's that you've worked in front of a screen most of your time. Everyone in the technical <laughs> field will face burnout and imposter syndrome at one point. Even myself, even. I face imposter syndrome and burnouts at the same time. Uh, what do you do when you face with those tough times and what do you recommend doing? Uh, I mean, it, especially with the pandemic uh, in the last uh, two years, I've been working fully with the screen, right? Everything is a video call, whether it's a whether it's a internal meeting, whether it's a meetup community or whatever, it's always a video call. I can totally get that. And, with, and I would say, I mean, it, you want to define what burnout is in this case also. Uh, at least in my case, what I would say burnout is like you get up one day in the morning and you don't feel like doing anything. You're like, okay, I don't want to do X, Y, Z. And you want to figure out why you're not able to do that. Uh, and then find out whether you want to change something in your environment or the, change the way you're working or change the place where, where you're working, right? Change the job or whatever else. Uh, that's that's one thing on burnout because a lot of times you usually see burnout happens when you're working on something that you feel is not contributing value back to you, right? And this goes back to this whole idea of everyone having a belief system, a value system where they see, okay, if I do X, this is where I think I, I get value back. So you need to define that. And especially, uh, again, as developers, we're not taught all of this. We get into the company thinking, if you write code and compile it, it works. But there's a lot that everyone needs to prepare on. One of the things is value systems. The other thing is on um, imposter syndrome. I would say it's a trait of the industry in a, in a way where when you work with smarter people who are smarter than you, you will always feel that you're faking it. I still feel like that even today where I work with a lot of awesome people in AWS who are like pretty smart. Age doesn't matter over there. You have a lot of younger people who are doing awesome stuff. Older people are doing awesome stuff. And I would say imposter syndrome is something, uh, the way I use it, as I use it as, a, as an energy of sorts to channel it towards learning something new, right? So I always say, okay, fine. I'm feeling that I am faking it. Let's make it real. 
right? Let's prepare for stuff. Let's learn for something, certifications or whatever else that is there so that I can I can show that, okay, I can actually do stuff. Does it mean that imposter syndrome goes away? I would say no. Um, but it doesn't mean that uh, imposter syndrome um, should always be viewed from a negative perspective. I would say maybe let's change the name first because it sounds very negative, imposter syndrome. Uh, I would say instead, instead you would want to uh, change it into something like perception where you say, okay, fine, I see that I'm at a certain level and I'm perceiving other people at a certain level. I see a gap. How can I bridge that gap so that I can reach where they are, right? And then continuously learn. And here is where I add a, an extra component. Whenever I actually start learning and then moving towards a certain direction, I always say, okay, fine. If I can move to that point, how many other people can I bring along with me? And I've I've been doing this for the last six years. And believe me, that has worked wonders where I've been able to build uh, friendships and relationships and even like a community of sorts around me where it's always okay. It's always like this this thing like um, when we were kids, right? We will run around at the park. Somebody goes to over the hill and then says, hey, everyone come here. I've seen something over there, right? If there was someone who just wanted it for themselves, they would have just gone and sat on the other side. So I believe I'm that kid. I believe I'm someone who's coming, who's gone over that hill, done the effort and I'm telling everyone, you know what, come over here and we're going to do something awesome over here. And uh, I think imposter syndrome as a concept over there has helped me to to fuel some of that uh, because I believe that I'm able to level up better because I see other people are better than me. And uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing.